I've been waiting to do another episode like this. I finally got uh, three French recordings together, and we uh, we now do the third episode of our French Me Baby series. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, looking back, uh, we've been doing this for, what, a year and a half now. And our largest number of downloads are for our episode 10. Uh, <laughs> I still don't know why. Uh, the 10th yeah. episode, Fiesta. And it keeps being downloaded, doesn't it? It keeps being downloaded uh, every week. See, I'm afraid to listen to it because I think we're a lot better at this now than we were. <laughs> I would hate to so. hear what we sounded like. <laughs> I would hope so after a year and a half. But, uh, yeah, that's yeah. the one that uh, we had the first Renitsky recording on, so that could be uh, part of the appeal. But uh, other than that episode, the uh, other two that uh, seem to keep being downloaded are, are uh, French Me Baby and <laughs> French Me Again Baby <laughs> episodes. So we had to go with another one of those, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have to do uh, one more. So this is the third installment in that series, which is called, of course... Keep Frenching me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. Well, because let's face it, we all want to be Frenched, don't we? Well, especially at least musically, because, you know, as we, <laughs> you know, as we point out on the program all the time, you know, the French have a way with sounds and uh, especially timbre. Yes. And yes. Uh, so the French approach uh, is a unique sort of national kind of concept of music that goes back into history and continues mm -hmm. to the uh, modern day. So we always find lots of, you know, French things to listen to and uh, other nationalities too. And uh, next week's going to be something a little bit different, but I'm not going to give that we'll away yet. We'll get to yet. that at the end, though. Yeah, I don't want to kind of spoil the... Uh, you, have to, you, have to, you have to listen to the end or fast forward to the end. If That's you right. know what that is. But um, we're always getting lots of French things in, but we had uh, kind of uh, an overflow of French things, so we decided... All well, of a sudden, yeah. All of a sudden. I've been trying to get a French episode up, like, you know, all year, really, but it's been hard. I haven't had enough uh, material, but now I've got, like, enough for three more episodes, I think. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Are we going to do three French episodes, or are you just going to... Yeah, we'll probably space it out. Up? Yeah, break yeah. it up. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Different things. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of fun to classify things instrumentally by you know different kind of uh, instrumentations it's also cool to do it by nationalities well we've had some italian moments recently um it'll be fun to uh do things french this week uh if we've got any new listeners out there you're wondering what are these guys talking about you're listening to adult music that's the podcast with music for the mature mind, uh, specifically focusing on uh, classical music and jazz. Once in a while, yeah. we get into some world music or some kind of uh, other types of things that cross the genre lines. And this is episode 68. And before we wow. get into our uh, French uh, exposition here, I want to remind listeners, if you check out the episode description, you'll find links uh, for all the music we're going to discuss on streaming, uh, that's to Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, also, at the top of the description, you'll find a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, which also comes from France, and that is The Deezer. Uh, <laughs> and I wonder where they came up with that name. I don't know. Yeah, it's a funny yeah. name. Uh, but we really like Deezer. It doesn't sound uh, French at all. You know, they're a smaller company that competes with all the, the giants, uh, Apple and Amazon. 
and uh, they do a good job. They were having CD quality uh, long before uh, the others jumped on, and that's yeah. why I chose them uh, a few years back. Uh, anyway, uh, they have a nice catalog and a good selection of classical and jazz music there. And you can also listen to the podcast uh, on Deezer. They've uh, been uh, stepping up their podcast game too. Uh, just look for us, uh, Adult Music Podcast, uh, you know, podcast and our playlist. I just want to say, if you want to hear a podcast on Deezer, you got to really know what you want to hear because they don't really lay them out very well. They, they're they really good with music, though. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of find stuff that way, but podcasts, they haven't really yeah. gotten their act together, really. They don't... Um, they don't have the discovery thing going, which is a real problem with pod, all podcast platforms in general. Uh, you know, the categories, the, the recommendations on most uh, platforms aren't really that good, uh, but hopefully things will improve. Anyway, we're there. And uh, if you don't see the links uh, for all the streaming links or the playlists on whatever app or platform you're on, because some uh, platforms don't. Uh, fully integrate all of our descriptions there. You can always jump over to our host site, which is Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and everything is uh, neat and clean there. You can follow all the links for this and all the past episodes. Now, if you do enjoy listening to us, uh, if you're intrigued by the music that uh, we include here, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you happen to be listening to us on. Uh, if you take a moment, give us a ranking, Write a short review. That also helps us get listed uh, in the recommended categories among all the K-pop and strange podcasts that are out there. Uh, and that helps us grow our audience. Uh, yeah. You can now find us also on Facebook. We've got a page there. Uh, please pop over there if you're on Facebook. There's a link from uh, Podbean to there. You can leave a message or comment. Uh, I've been posting lots of videos. Uh, anytime I find a new album that I know I'm going to get on the podcast, I put it. There's a couple great releases. There's an awesome Italian trumpet release uh, there this week, uh, too. You said gonna it. Get you on even the podcast. sent me the link, but I haven't heard it yet, though. Yeah, um, and a couple other uh, new ones. There's a great uh, Brian Landris uh, red list. Uh, it's kind of a save the animals thing, which is, I guess it's all right, you know, for... Uh, it's whales and stuff, but it's bass clarinet and berry sax uh, that features. As, as on long it. as it's not your girlfriend. Yeah. Well, or anything that I barbecue, <laughs> like lambs and cows and stuff. So, oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, you can find us on. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook and uh, catch out our uh, warped humor that we post during the week with good music links too. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, uh, any comments or questions, we also like to hear from you by email. Our address is adult music podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Uh, so get in touch if you have anything uh, to say or any questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. All right. Okay. So we're going to do this uh, French uh, music episode today and we have a, a theme now, don't we? Uh, just a little bit. Just well, we're live on location from an unknown cafe in Paris. Oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, you know, the ambiance is right. And you know, when I hear that, I, I, I feel like... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder where, where that whole like accordion, that really carefree, light accordion theme comes from, because the French, to me, aren't like that at all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> But yeah, the, but um, the, the, it, it is it does kind of give you this nice kind of feeling. And in Paris, it's an interesting place that way. I just the whole like 
the look of it and all that mm. stuff. I really, uh, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. I love it there. <laughs> well, we know that, that music, uh, from France is always uh, intriguing from any period mm. and, uh, lots of interesting things going on. And we're going to go, uh, start things out kind of, uh, with a, I guess a French connection more, uh, going yeah, way back tonight. A yeah. French connection. Okay. So I'm going to, let's get into the, uh, classical recordings here. The first is called, okay, I didn't practice my French this week. So let me see if I can say this. It's called De la Cour de Louis Quatrième à Chipagan. Sean, I think that Chipagan came out more Italian. Yeah, yeah I think you're Italian. Chipagan, eh? Chant traditionnel acadien. Acadien. Air de cour du. Oh, geez. I don't, what is this? <laughs> it's, it's, it's. Oh, God. Soixante-dixième siècle. I think that's what it is. The 17th oh. century. Because okay. they don't. Uh, but the, the the thing is, the um, the French Canadians would say this is really crazy about French and Canadian French because the French, the Canadian French would say what we would say. They'd say like deceptième, um, you know, the seventeenth. Mm. But in in when you want to say uh, seventeen in um, oh no, that's not right. I, this is um, fifteen. Oh, I'm messing it up. Deceptis No, it's deceptième. Sorry, I, I said it wrong. I'm, I'm getting confused here. Okay, El du Cour du Deceptième Siècle. Okay, so the 17th century. Mm. Basically, what this means is from the court of Louis XIV to Chipagan, which is a um, place in Canada. Okay, Ch traditional chants or songs, uh, traditional Acadian songs and uh, Air du Cour, um, court songs of the 17th century. And this is sung by Susie Leblanc, a soprano. She's a Canadian soprano. Marie Nadeau Tremblay. Uh, who plays the Baroque violin, and Vincent Lauser, recorder, and Sylvain Bergeron, arch lute and Baroque guitar. This is on the Atma Classique label. Okay, so this music comes from, as we said, the Baroque era. I just totally messed up that title in French. I got to go back <laughs> to France one day. Okay. This is the, uh, by the way, the fourth album of Acadian songs that Susie oh. LeBlanc has recorded. She's like a big fan of this repertoire. Wow. And she's, if you if you look, if you do a search for her, like recording, say on Amazon or something, you'll see that she's, like most sopranos, she's like sung on 200 albums or something, mm -hmm. you know, operas and like her solo things you know, as a part of an ensemble and all of this. But then there are these kind of pet project that she has and mm. this is one of them um she's canadian as i mentioned um um the other three by the way the the most recent one before this one was um christmas songs from uh <laughs> oh. traditional christmas songs from uh the acadian traditional christmas acadian songs um which sounds pretty appealing i mean i have, I have yeah. to give that a listen too because this one was really beautiful I'll just mm. um spill the beans right now um in this one, she's taken some of these uh, folk songs, which are very uh, pentatonic in, uh, in really modal in um, character, like any folk song, really. And she's programmed there with um, El Ducour from uh, Louis XIV's Court. So those are going to be more like art songs, like the new Baroque style. They're going to be in major mm. and minor keys, that sort of thing. The new for the time meaning, okay? Um, in this um, release, uh, the booklet notes don't tell us much. Um, I had to look no. up some stuff. They weren't really very helpful, which which is too bad because I don't know much about Acadian music. But I can tell you that Shippagan is a Canadian town in New Brunswick, Canada. 
not New Brunswick, New Jersey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, man. Okay. And Acadia was located in Canada, was located in what is now Eastern Canada's maritime provinces, which are Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island, as well as parts of Quebec. And present-day Maine was also mm. once part of Canada, um, up to the Kennebec River. Any Maine listeners out there? Okay. Acadian songs all came from different regions of France, and songs like people's are nomadic. I really wish people would keep this in mind. Um, music really can't be contained. I like to think of music as like a gas, where if you put a gas in a container, it fills the container and takes the shape of the container. It just, you know, mm-hmm. music does that too. It just fills whatever ears it can, really. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll travel all over the world if, it, if just... Um, set free so I don't know I, I think uh, that's kind of our model here on mm-hmm. adult music anyway we like to spread we like music to spread as far and wide as yeah. possible we don't uh, we don't believe in uh, kind of appropriation kind of ideas we think you know once it's out there I don't there, think you can just, appropriate music as an artist you can but you know, there's a listener yeah, but crazy. once it gets out there it's yeah. it just spreads yeah. and uh, goes all mm-hmm. over the place so you know yeah Okay, so these came from all different regions of France, these songs, and uh, they wound up traveling to Canada with the first settlers, these songs did. And the Air du Cour, Air de Cour, from uh, Louis XIV's court, were a subtle art form inspired by Italian song, as was most Baroque music, really. It all started in Italy and played a major role in French song. Okay, it would, again, become a bit softer. It started out as like Italian. So just like French cooking, it started out as really Italian cooking and then got subtler as it went on. Well, I have to know. tell you that yeah. I got Frenched like oh. before I was born. In what way? Well, because uh, <laughs> almost half of me is, uh, you know, descends from this kind of uh, lineage here. So oh, I have, cool. uh, you have French who came into uh, Quebec and these... Uh, Eastern provinces, and then yeah. uh, came down to New York. New York, and, you're uh, way upstate yeah. New York, though. You're up yeah. uh, near in Rochester, yeah. is that right? Well, I'm as closer to Canada, uh, Albany. You're closer uh, to Canada. So. I guess maybe it's the music school up there, but some of the the best um, American jazz musicians, like and even like in popular music, came from that area. Like upstate New York. St- I mean, Steve going Gadd east to west, who yeah. On Rochester Gann and, and, and um, yeah. out there, really Chuck Mangione and. Um, yeah. Don Menz, you know, all the way out to Buffalo and like that. Um, Yeah, it's uh, somehow. There's not a lot else to do in the winter except practice music (laughs) upstate New York. So, yeah, a lot of musicians come from there. It's cold up there. Yeah, Mm. boy. But uh, these songs were all uh, really kind of nice. And I really liked this um, sparse but clear uh, Baroque instrumentation with these instruments here. So uh, I got drawn into them more than I thought I would. Yeah, it was a nice uh, appetizer even for tonight's uh, program, which mm. I've rather cleverly, uh, you know, um, yeah. programmed as a three-course meal, as we would in France, uh. would we not? Okay, this this would be the appetizer, I guess. Anyway, it's a set of songs, and let's go through them. Um, Jean-Baptiste de Bousset and Michel Blavet. Now, uh, the pronunciation of these songs is kind of, because they had a different way of saying them in the Baroque era. Pourquoi, pourquoi, right? Pourquoi du Rosignol? Which is why sweet nightingale, Rosignol is the nightingale. Mm. Very um, common theme in music in general because they sing, nightingales yeah. sing. And the Even lyrics. appears in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. The lyrics for all of these songs are really kind of, uh, uh, you know, romantic, uh, kind yeah. of longing, uh, 
kind yeah. of uh, chivalry type of themes. And, yeah. and uh, also highly populated by nightingales. Yes. And mm. <laughs> there's some yeah. of them that are kind of uh, humorous too as they get through the program. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about those. Okay, so the first one, man, we start right away. Very pretty. There's a slow Baroque guitar accompaniment, very sparse and uh, still. And it'll just set this beautiful mood for you. Um, and then there's a vibrato-less violin, so period instrument style, mm. basically no vibrato. On the violin. And it really does suit this music very well. Yeah. It makes it sound a bit austere. Yeah, it's got that sound- little rough edge to the violin on this recording, right. that little burr that you know, sounds really warm like that. and nice, yeah. Yeah, so you have a somber sort of um, mood. And the voice has like a... It's a beautiful voice, by the way, uh, Susie LeBlanc. She has, mm. This is easy to, li- easily, easy to listen to. Um, but a lot of... I know a lot of people, like, oh, they say, oh, I don't like opera with these big voices. But this uh, this is an operatic voice, but she's not singing at full power here. She's, mm. she's in a more lyrical sort of... Um, very pretty kind of mode. It sounds great. Um, let's see... Um, there's a kind of a reverb halo around the voice, but not too much. It suits this the voice and the performance very well. I rather liked it. It's almost like a spotlight on the voice in a way. Mm. And uh, I like the whole image that is conjured up in this in sound, you know, in your room as you listen to this on your speakers. It's a gorgeous song. Uh, the lyrics question why the uh, nightingale has come to awaken the singer before dawn. Um, and she doesn't get an answer. <laughs> it's just the question. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, it sets a lovely meditated move, meditative mood for the whole album. All right. The next one, I'm guessing that one would be one of the, um, uh, Air de Cour, that um, would have been heard in the uh, court of Louis XIV. Next, we get a traditional song, Chanson des Amantes, the uh, song of the uh, lovers. Um, this is Baroque violin and guitar. It's an instrumental. Um, and um, actually, I'm guessing that. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a guitar. It's definitely the Baroque guitar. Uh, much in the same mood as the previous song, and it continues that late night tranquil mood. This is a really great record for late, late at night. It mm. just sounds really kind of like uh, after a few whiskeys when you're really just kind of winding down. <laughs> it's really, really good for that. Um, uh, it's got a lovely melody, and this would be one of the Acadian songs. The next song, Rosignolet Sauvage, again, there's that uh, nightingale. This is um, the first of the... Um, uh, Akkadian songs that is um, sung. So we have a Baroque guitar and soprano on this one. This is Susie LeBlanc singing. Another slow song, atmospheric. The singer asks the nightingale to teach her to speak, talk, and love in the way that he, the nightingale, does. Uh, this has a folk song quality to it with its mm. modal approach, and you'll notice that right away. It's just kind of, I think it's pentatonic probably. Yeah. And it's got this ancient quality to it. Folk songs generally are pentatonic think rock and roll except that without the, <laughs> the driving rhythms and stuff they're they're really the same as uh, you know harmonically you know it's, it's you know but um there you go anyway next is michel lambert ma bergère this um just the title tells you this comes from louis the 14th court uh but bergère is a female shepherd shepherdess let's say mm. Um, and they were the Louis the Fourteenth Court was just crazy about shepherds and shepherdesses and the <laughs> the uh, things they got up to up there in the mountains. Wow. <laughs> um, we talked about this uh, long ago on that. We did an out al- the album um, 
with the, the the sheep on the cover. I can't remember what. It was. Oh it was yeah, like yeah, the, the yeah. The French, right? the French one, right? Yeah. Yeah. This this yeah. type of song would be called a brunette, which um, has something to do with shepherds and shepherdesses. Mm. The um, I had mentioned the people of Louis the court. They were under. You know, they didn't really. We, we, you think of like aristocrats they just sit around all day doing nothing you know but -hmm. they're not doing nothing they're supervising their lands and they're also um kind of in this sort of tight structure where they have to behave a certain way and you know then and they kind of feel you know sort of um restrained by their the life that they the image they have to put across so then they they fantasize about being free in the mountains with their sheep you know kind of getting it on mm. with some shepherd girl or something <laughs> you know but uh so that that's what's going on with the popularity of these types of songs at that time um all the instruments on the uh album are on this one i think um same tempo as the previous nothing wrong with that these are all like the same tempo they, it will pick up a bit mm. but m- this is usually generally the tempo for most of the album this kind of somber slow tempo uh, the instrument, the the thing that's holding interest between these songs, they're all the same tempo, is the uh, varieties of instrumentation. This is a really mm-hmm. cleverly um, arranged program, so you're not going to get bored by it unless you just don't like the music, I guess. Um, LeBlanc's voice is pleasant. Her approach is varied enough to hold the attention. And next we get a traditional song, Le Berger. Now, this one is not from Louis XIV's court. It's traditional Acadia song, but it's about a shepherd. Um, you can hear the pentatonic folk qualities right at the beginning of this. Um, let, by the way, pentatonic, penta five, so it's a five-note scale, as opposed to a seven-note scale, which is going to have more of a sort of pull towards, um, you know, the way the way the notes are arranged, a pull towards a certain tone. Um, but pentatonic scales tend to be more, they don't really have a center, a tonal center. Um, so we could you could stop anywhere. Anyway or less of a tonal center let's say this is led by the flute and there's an arch lute in this one so we get a little subtle change in the uh, plucked instrument sound um this is a fairly long song at six minutes and 50 seconds i guess uh hmm. you know those uh <laughs> it sang all day i guess those people <laughs> uh the tempo has all been the same no complaints there it's meditative um this touching song features a shepherd leaving a shepherdess because she's been unfaithful to him oh with another shepherd apparently um she pleads with him that they go off and be together again i guess we can only assume that this is what they do we don't really know that but just because she gets her pleading words in last we assume that they do in fact go off together and the song ends with the request okay track six louis claude daquin now this guy daquin wrote you you may be familiar with his Christmas organ works. Now, if you go to um, it, he wrote these pieces called Noels, and they're often played in church. If you go to church uh, on Christmas week or you know up until um, Epiphany, like the, a lot of uh, organists will pull these out and, and play them. Um, but it, that's not this. This is you know what we have here is um, this is a piece by Dacan, um called Le Cuckoo, and then there's a traditional song that it's kind of mixed with called Le Mato. So it goes back and forth between these. This Daquin composition, Le Cuckoo, and the uh, Acadian song, Le Mateau. Okay, uh, we have a tempo change here. This is all about birds. The uh, cuckoo is the cuckoo, of course. And we talked about the cuckoo when we, in uh, Pedras Vasque's yeah. work from, was that last week or was that two weeks ago? I don't remember. Wow. Just the weeks recently, going by so I know fast. that, yeah. Yeah, it was recent. It was in the last few weeks, mm. if not last week. 
Okay, so the first part, this is a more traditional, um, you know, um, interpretation of the cuckoo sound. The first part features a high-speed recorder figure. <laughs> this is, it almost sounds like a cuckoo clock yeah. because he's playing it so fast. Uh, the recorder and the violin is sounding the cuckoo's call too. Impressive, charming, also very virtuosic. Uh, the first time we're really hearing virtuosity on this album. At the minute and 52 second mark, we get a traditional vocal song. That's Le Mato. Uh, the change to the pentatonic is very noticeable. And that tune sounds like a rustic dance. Now, yeah. Le Mato actually is not a bird. It's um, a tomcat. So, you know, one of these um, alley cat type things. Yeah, I like <laughs> in this one, too, there's kind of like a country fiddle quality yeah. to it with a little kind of bent pitch. Uh, yeah. play in there that uh, sticks out um, and sounds uh, yeah kind of interesting in the mix yeah, this is a rather a naughty song by the way mm. uh, Le Mato um, it's a the, the Tomcat is like a, it's like a guy just like a Tomcat who would be kind of just looking to uh, get his lady cat there you know but mm. uh, some the this guy is looking for uh, a tryst with another man's wife at the end of the song, he's caught by the husband in the room hiding under a wash basin. So <laughs> justice is served. Anyway. Okay. Seven, uh, Michel Lambert. And we, we're going to hear that song again at the end, by the way. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, Michel Lambert, Jugé de ma douleur. This means um, judging by my suffering. People really <laughs> like singing about their suffering in the Renaissance. And the Baroque, that kind of went away. They were all kind of a little more... You were emotional or something like that. But uh, slow in tempo, led by the recorder, more refined in its harmony, surely from the court. It's a long composition, 8 minutes, 24 seconds. Uh, two minutes of instrumentals, and then the uh, voice enters in the second minute. And it's one of those um, songs, you've rejected me, now I can't go on living, that huh. I as an Italian have heard from every Italian person I've ever met. So. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's very pretty and sensitively done here. Okay. And now, next comes a composer that I really like a lot um, from the Renaissance era, Robert de Visay. And he generally wrote um, works for the guitar, baroque guitar, any kind of string instrument, lute. Um, I have a few recordings of his music on him. They're all really good. Anyway, here we get an instrumental from him, uh, Prelude, Sarabande et Gigue in uh, G minor. These are all, uh, well, the prelude is a prelude and the other two are dances. Um, it's a three movement work and it's all on one track. I will break this down for you. And it's for solo arch lute in this case. Um, the first two movements are slow and stately, uh, a saraband by definition is, and the jig starting around three minutes and five seconds picks up the tempo only a little. It's not really like a all out raucous jig. Um, it's a pretty relaxing meditative piece. There's a gorgeous and very intellectually appealing descending line when the melody heads towards a cadence at the very end of the track. Listen to that. Track nine. Le coq et la poule. Okay, because mm. it's the, the uh, hen and the, uh, the rooster and the hen. Um, a folk, oh, by the way, so le coq, uh, C-O-Q, that is the... Uh, yeah, anyone out there likes um, sports or likes, you know, that's the French national, at least the soccer team's um, symbol. Okay, mm. they're, they're, on their shirt, they have their rooster. Um, so, a, a f <laughs> I th there's a company called Le Coq Sportif, which yeah, means yeah, yeah. the sporting rooster. <laughs> 
trying to work that out. I, I can't get an image of what that would look like in my head anyway. Well, I mean, I don't know, cockfights maybe? I don't know. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe he's not. That used to be the most popular American uh, entertainment until it got banned. And then I'm I guess we went, that's not what went straight with uh, horse horse racing. No, of course not. But Maybe he's sporting with the ladies too. You don't know. Could don't be. Know. Anyway, Le Coque Le Poule is a folk song. It's a traditional Acadia song about a priest. <laughs> oh, no. Who separates a rooster from a hen, but they get back together. The hen <laughs> has fainted without her rooster uh, guy. Mm. And the rooster goes to her and gives her the best medicine. Wink, wink. And <laughs> she's all right again. <laughs> um, there's some uh, virtuosic recorder playing in this. And as has been the case throughout, LeBlanc characterizes the song well. This has a dancey rhythm to it. <laughs> Those priests always separating. <laughs> Making sure people just aren't happy. Anyway, I especially like the muted strings at the end of the piece. Nice atmosphere on this one. These are fun to talk about, I have mm. to say. Uh, Jacques Martin, Haute Terre, uh, Je suis aimé de celle que j'adore. Um, and this is taken from an air by Michel Lambert. Um, this starts with a solo recorder. It's an instrumental. And it seems that it... All four minutes and 26 seconds are reserved for the recorder solo. It's got an appealing melody with some ornamentation added. Uh, Vincent Lauser, the recorder player on this, uh, keeps the line of the composition very clear. Really pretty. It's nice to hear the recorder yeah. solo like this. I like this a lot. Honoré d'Ambruy pour charmer les ennuis, to charm the ills. Okay, this is track 11. Uh, this is soprano and arch lute. Um, a lot of songs about nightingales on this album, as I've mentioned. And here, the singer endures the nightingale song to charm her ills. Mm. She's languishing in love, and the nightingale pities her troubles with his song. <laughs> but she's not happy about that because it's making her sadder still. I like the programming. LeBlanc has a lot of vocal ornaments that resemble those in the previous piece for a recorder. So this was re rather clever programming. Again, this uh, piece followed the recorder. Um, you know, um, composition, mm. and we're hearing um, Susie LeBlanc singing in much the way the recorder played. It's kind of a uh, nice, it's like a you know timbre change and almost the mm. sounding like a similar piece. Her approach is much the same as the recorder's, giving a sense of continuity. Next, here he is again, Robert de Vizet. I love this guy, and uh, Michel Lambert. This is two different uh, compositions that are mixed together. Uh, Chacon by uh, de Vizet and Gouton. On du repos, which is um, uh, let's see, this is there's a song there. Okay, so the archlute and recorder play the chacon. It's charming and soothing, and at the three minute and seventeen second mark, uh, we get the transition to the song. It's a really nice transition, by the way. Mm. You make sure you give that a listen or pay attention when it comes up. It'll just make you happy. It's a rather funny lyric for such a tender song. The singer must stop loving Sylvie. Now, Sylvie, she's kind of a character in these type of songs that keeps reappearing. I think she's the uh, the more uh, the, the, the shepherdess that kind of gets it on with a lot of shepherds. <laughs> there's one who's really uh, constant, and um, um, there's a shepherdess that's... Um, I can't remember the names now, because they all had names. And... Um, you know, this one character would be, you know, faithful to her shepherd and Sylvie is just kind of just uh, living it up. She's <laughs> Anyway, the singer must stop loving Sylvie for the moment because her grip is harsh, but his continuing desire for her troubles his heart. 
and he wonders if he gives in, what will become of him for the rest of his life? (laughs) (laughs) I bet every man who ever got married wondered the same thing. Anyway, the last track on the album is um, Le Mato Again. This is a different version. It's actually a straight-ahead folk version of the song, very different than everything we've heard on this album. It's by a folk band called uh, Vishten. And um, they're a Canadian folk music trio that does Acadian songs. Um, yeah. Fishten here is accompanying Susie LeBlanc um, with percussion and voices. Uh, Ellen Torrey is playing the guitar, and it's the only track she appears on. And the backing vocalists are Emmanuel and Pastel LeBlanc, who are apparently, I guess, Susie's sisters. I don't know. Huh. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. I, it didn't say. Yeah. You expect like a Richie Havens version of something going on here. It gets right. uh, kind of like it could have been at Woodstock when they uh, did this one. Anyway, first of all, um, Pastel is a really pretty name for a woman. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. I got to put that in my... Uh, it's better than Estelle, I guess. Yeah. Est- Estelle is good. That means star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But um, yeah, so this is a this is a nice way to end the album. It's a little bit of a surprise, sort of like a, and it's got this light sort of nice dancing drumming feel to in there it. too. Yeah, just drumming. Yeah. All right, so this album I think is a, a bit of magic, especially in the Acadian folk songs. I really enjoyed this a lot, and I'm really curious now to hear the Christmas album, which yeah. will be on my Christmas listening list for this year. That came out about five years ago or so. Um, she's done. This is the fourth of these albums that she's done. Um, the song, the Akkadian songs conjure up an, I said an ancient past, but I don't think it's that ancient. It's really just, um, although they sound really old, so maybe it does mm. do that. Sus- Susie LeBlanc sings them sensitively. She's in the idiom, which is really amazing because a lot of singers who train in the conservatory, I mean, they're kind of like old technique and not much, uh, yeah. feeling, but she's got... Susie LeBlanc's got all of this. She sounds great. She sounds like really made to sing these songs. And she obviously loves them. Mm. Um, You just hear that. And that'll just make you like them even more. This album won't disturb polite company. It has the air of an album played in a cultured house. (laughs) It's enjoyable listening. Gently, it's gentle. It's ideal for late night. Anyone with an ear for gentle folk music or earlier ages should hear this. Yeah, this is good. (laughs) I liked it. Yeah, it's got an earthiness to it that sort of connects French music to the new world. The sparse but varied instrumentation keeps pulling you in. Uh, The recorder sounds great. I I like the recorder and uh, violin interplay on a lot of the pieces, the way the tones blend together and then separate to do the various um, independent lines is is really interesting. Uh, There's lots of rhythmic variety. If you can get a hold of the album notes and look at the lyrics, oh, there's a lot of comedy in there. Yeah, uh, there it's is. All, you know, dramatic, romantic things, but wink, wink, sort of yeah. um, hinted meetings as well. And it's done, I, I don't want to say lighthearted. Some of it is lighthearted, but it's heartfelt and uh, the musicianship and ex- feeling of expression is good. Yeah, I think you can enjoy this at nighttime. Uh in the morning might be good too. Yeah, it's just interesting yeah. music. It's done in a fresh way, so it doesn't sound, um, you know, like they're trying just to capture something from a period. But uh, it it 
gets a new sort of relevance uh, for the performance as it is done now. So, right. yeah, enjoyable. Yeah, good way to unwind. It's really very mostly a meditative album for the most part. All right. Our second album is yet another. I have a lot of these. Um, recording of uh, Ravel's, well, oh. two concertos for piano and then some of it mixed in with some of his uh, melodies or songs. Yeah. And um, this is kind of an interesting combination. Not only that, but the songs that they chose for this are not often performed. So I was kind of happy to to hear this. This is by um, Cédric Tibergien who's the pianist, and Stéphane de Goot, the baritone player, and an orchestra and conductor that I really follow. I, I'm interested in every new recording they make, Le Siècle and François-Xavier Roth. And this is on the Harmonia Mundi label. Um, basic, now, I I bought this thinking, okay, it's a Le Siècle album and Tibergian is playing on it, but it's really Tibergian's album. He's, on, he's the only mm. musician on every track. Um, the rest are there to accompany or fill out the program. And De Goud, I guess, um, and Lissy Echo both kind of share it with him, but he's he's really the star. Mm. And in fact, um, he's the soloist in the piano concerto in G. Um, and uh, this is a very famous work. It's got is kind of inspired by uh, jazz, so it's kind of jazzy. Mm. I think uh, by this point, um, Ravel had heard Gershwin's music, and um, mm. and also he was also very interested in just American forms, the blues, and um, right. Jazz and of course, you know, being the dapper, um, elegant man that he was, he had to like dress it up. <laughs> but <laughs> but when he does it, it sounds fantastic. You know, it's like yeah. it's, it doesn't sound like uh, the jazz elements disappear. Really, they just kind of just feel good. I, well, they always feel good anyway. But they're just you know a little too elegant to be nasty. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, the uh, first movement, Allegramente, starts with the famous pistol shot. Okay, it starts with a pistol shot, and then and I've seen this performed live. The um, the uh, the conductor actually has, I don't know what it is. It's not a pistol, but it's kind of like a little like pop gun. That oh, he, or a start that pistol he holds over for the horse and, races or something. Yeah. yeah, and he fires it over his head, and then like the whole, and it does mm. kind of start like a horse race because you sort of have the this right. piano figuration going at this really rapid Fanciful, speed, very yeah. quietly, and the orchestra is like kind of the winds are sort of bubbling over. It's a really cool, it's a really yeah. pretty effect, and uh, rather sensual too, I thought. Um, the sound at the beginning has an incredible, even gossamer quality to the lines. All of those register clearly. This is an amazing recording. Yeah, I thought really it's, nice dynamics. Um, yeah, it's wide ranging. You want to listen to this in a quiet space. Yeah, um, and uh, you can hear soft to loud, a, a big range here, uh, but everything's captured very clearly. Yeah, yeah. So if you're interested in orchestral detail, as I am, this is a really good recording to be hearing. Um, this is, you know, I, I said it right here too. It's a fairly quiet recording, though very clear. Um, a little volume boost will have you in the right listening space. Good presence to the orchestra. You always want to hear details in Ravel's orchestra writing. He was one of the best um, orchestrators mm. who ever lived, basically. Um, and it seems like all the great orchestrators all lived at the beginning of the 20th century. I guess <laughs> there was just something in the air then. Uh, Debussy is another one. And uh, we talked to Nielsen, Sibelius, Mahler, mm. of course. Yeah. Um, th there, there are a number of them. Um, even even Schoenberg, really. Mm. Yeah. There are others, too. I'm just not thinking of them all. Um, but um, there are a lot of sudden changes of character subsumed into the overall sound. This uh, works very well. Again, this is that uh, 
I think it was last week. I don't remember when, but we were talking about how uh, editing in movies influenced the way classical works were oh, written. Right, because yeah. instead of um, um, instead of um, sort of like modulating to a new key, you would just go there like a splice in a film. People started to accept this because of right. movies, right? Actually, so it's kind of yeah. Around that time too, you know, because now we're talking like you know early twentieth century recording. Yeah. These are the first recordings, and I believe right. you know Ravel was one of the earliest composers who was actually present at the recordings of his music, mm. and you know contributed his ideas into and enthusiasm into capturing you know the the music you know to be produced and you know replayed later. Uh, so this is a, a new idea uh, that's right. born around this time too. And uh, something we take for granted today, <laughs> we just, you know, we listen to all these things for the podcast and as everyone does. But uh, from the standpoint of the composer, that his music was going to be captured permanently and yeah. uh, then replayed, you know, this was something new. And Ravel was there and, uh, you know, present for some of the early recordings of his works. We, when we listen to classical music, by the way, one of the one of the things we need it's it's a good idea to know a bit about history and to um, know what was happening or what the uh, the norms were at the time that the music was written because a lot of it um, you know, a, a lot of what was happening around really has a big influence on music. Like I said, music and mm -hmm. uh, I mean movies and editing kind of started worked its way into music where like new sections just sound edited in mm -hmm. um for that you can think of stravinsky's ballet petrushka it's with all those sudden changes um i think movies played a bit of a role in that um so oh i had something yeah it's it's sort of an important thing like we a lot of us think that um we're just supposed to understand all music oh it's music it doesn't really have meaning but it does um you know, and classical music, it's, it's what, 400 years? Now it's been expanded back into the Renaissance era and the early medieval. So from around the year 1300 on, you have 700 plus years of music. And you're supposed to just understand all that as like uh, somebody <laughs> wrote it yesterday? <laughs> it's not. These people were all in different, very different circumstances than we were when they wrote this music. And it helps to just learn a little bit about that. Um, somebody once told me, this was actually Robert Greenberg. I, I saw, I think this is on his teaching company class where he... He talks about how we think as of the ancient past as just a long time ago. You know, like for example, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, ancient Egypt. Um, so it's all in our minds very old, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> but then he points out that the um, pyramids were uh, built um, like 2,000 plus years before. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, ancient Rome. Okay. And um, – so someone like Julius Caesar, who lived a long time ago, would have looked at the pyramids as a thing of wonder the same way we do. So the same so Julius Caesar lived two thousand years ago, even more than that, a little more now. Um, and we think of him as living a long time ago. But Julius Caesar, when he was alive, the pyramids were already two thousand years old. So he looked at the pyramids the same yeah. way we look at him and the pyramids. <laughs> So yeah. a little historical perspective is important. And, and on a micro level, I yeah. used to think back in the 80s, I looked at my mom's Beatles albums and I oh, looked, yeah. 1963, that was a long time ago. I know, right? And, uh, yeah. Now, um, you know, I'm still looking at things in the 90s saying, oh, you know, that was cool. And uh, then I realized, oh, 
it was 30 years ago now. So uh, time, your perspective of time is uh, always changing, you know, based right. on your own limited experience. And so we have to expand that uh, into the longer realms of history. And it's hard to get a perspective sometimes. Yeah, not only that, but computers are really just speeding everything up for us now, yeah. too. I mean, just even like 10 years ago seems like ancient history already, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny what you said. I remember 1987, you know, I was in college at the time, and uh, the you know, the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. By that time, it was 20 years old, yeah. It was 20 years ago today, right? Right. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. And uh, in 1987, of course, all the journalists um, on the 20th anniversary of the album, they the headline was always, it was 20 years ago today. And I was in college at the time. And um, I remember thinking, wow, that was a long time ago. This is an old album. Yeah. And now it's what, like 50 plus years ago? <laughs> I mean, what 55, happened? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, I don't even remember those 30 years in between. That. <laughs> yeah. What happened? It's all condensed down. I know. Anyway, I think classical music, all that classical music listening just made time stand still for me. Yeah. It still does. So if you want to be young forever, listeners. <laughs> yeah, stretch out the 700 years and you'll live forever. Yeah, there you go. All right, let me see here. Um, okay. Um, Roth, uh, the conductor, Francois Xavier Roth, has caught my ear on many occasions in the past. And uh, so he's um, in good form here. Uh, keeping the um, rhythm going steadily. It's almost kind of like a, it's not quite a machine or mechanical, but it's, it is kind of like very, very steady. There's no, as it should be. Uh, Tibergian has a very light sound on this and a good sense of the jazzy rhythms and elegant tonality that make this piece work. I really like the way the bluesy orchestra part at two minutes and 20 seconds was taken. I had never noticed this before in other performances, <laughs> but Roth kind of makes it uh, sort of sing out a little bit like a bluesy melody, which was nice. And it's interrupted by the piano, which I also really liked the way that happens. Um, this is a pretty exciting performance of this movement. It's faster than usual and uh, exposes uh, certain orchestral and melodic details that aren't often clear. For example, I loved the harp detail at uh, 4 minutes and 28 seconds onwards. Um, the horn theme at uh, 5 minutes and 30 seconds also comes across well. Um, usually this piece is all piano for me, but my ear is being caught by a lot more on this recording. Um, beautiful orchestral textures by the conductor. The piano produces a crystalline sound, and that's going to be a word I use a lot in this um talking about this album to sound is very crystalline at least on this album he doesn't sound like that when he's accompanying um alina ibergimova who's he's her sort of a recital partner um but anyway he's got that sound here and he's got this great sound for this cascading scale scales and figures this is a fantastic realization of this particular movement then we get to the second movement the most famous one adagio asai and it famously starts with the uh, long solo piano part. Uh, Tabergian's playing seems to me to have a lot to do with the overall sound he produces, like a good French uh, musician. I feel like the gorgeous melody here could have been more poetically taken, um, but it registers well enough. And also Ravel once said that um, his music doesn't need to be interpreted, it just needs to be played. Like he didn't want musicians taking liberties with what he wrote on the page. He felt like it would just come across. And I think that Tibergian takes him at his word here. But I have heard more expressive um, recordings of this movement. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind. This 
the I I can't criticize this because it's a it's a correct approach, let's say. But I just feel like some of the juice isn't squeezed out of this gorgeous melody. Uh, I think he airs on the that Tabergian airs on the metronomic side in this um, movement, which doesn't hurt in a Ravel performance. Um, but um, he's flexible. Tabergian is flexible enough to have you hearing the beauty of the piano writing. Um, it's more precision than poetry, though. That's what I would say. I'm being overly sensitive in saying this, but think about that when you listen, or if you want to compare it to another recording. Let's say Christian Zimmerman's. He recorded this, right? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> anyway, I think uh, Yuja Wang also recorded this, so you can listen to her recording and get like a different perspective. Um, uh, the orchestra comes in with the piano's trill at two minutes and 55 seconds and continues his line. I love that effect. It's so nice. It's almost like the sound of the piano morphed into something else. You know, it's it's almost like you're seeing a transform into something before your eyes. Um, I like the sensitivity Roth and Les Siecle are bringing to the orchestral part. There's a beautiful cadence really kind of just warming the heart at three minutes and 50 seconds. It's very gentle. The music continues into a darker key area after this, but nothing scary and awful. Uh, Tabergian produces a crystalline sound in the figuration after minute five. There's another nice cadence at five minutes and 33 seconds. Very elegantly and sophisticatedly taped taken really beautiful Tabergian seems to like the blend with the orchestra rather than stand out in this piece and his approach to this piece anyway um so he's giving us a bit of an alternative perspective on the writing uh, the tempo isn't swift but feels like it's being moved along at a good pace at the seven minute mark i liked this but the speed and approach have it coming up lacking in poetry i've said that before um these musicians want you to hear what's there more than draw a feeling out of it. Um, nice ending on the piano trilling chords at the end. Okay, we get a, the third movement, the faster one. The drum thud on the opening phrase is a bit muted. It, I guess uh, Roth doesn't really want it to uh, just kind of pin you to your chair you know, before you start hearing the piano. Um, the piano's figuration is clearly heard, as are the sliding brass and winds. This is another great orchestral detail on this recording. The piano's got some virtuosic writing to navigate here, and that crystalline sound of Tabergians comes up well here. I like the way that chiming percussion comes up with extra dimension at the one-minute mark. A lot of orchestral detail emerges from this well-judged performance, and the piano is audible enough that one can revel into Bergen's virtuosity. Roth has a lot of ideas in how to characterize individual line, as though they're all important characters in a theater piece. Amazing quiet figuration right before the final statement of the opening theme, and the bass drum thud that ends the piece. This is a very exciting performance, mm. though I thought the outer movements came across with more character and excitement than the middle movement did. But that's a minor quibble you should probably hear this um particular uh performance okay we move on to uh a um set of songs uh don quixote a dulcine so don quixote a to dulcinea he's speaking to her and this is a uh, stefan de gut and um cedric tibergian on the piano uh de gut is a baritone okay and um we have three um of these Don Quixote songs. The first one is Chanson Romanesque. And uh, this is really more romantic. The romantic verses detailing what uh, Don Quixote will do for Dulcinea out of love are bookended by dissonant piano sounds indicating Quixote's lunacy. 
<laughs> he's really he's really been moonstruck here. The next uh, song is chanson épique, so epic song. This comes across as a hymn with the lyric uh, praising because it's got chords, so it's like a churchy sort of vibe to it. With the lyric praising Saint Michael for giving uh, Don Quixote leave to be with Dulcinea, we hear the full power of De Gut's voice here um, toward the end of the first minute, and it's a very noble sounding piece. And then the third song, a complete uh, tra- contrast, Chansuana Bois, drinking song. Um, this has a 20th century popular song rhythm and melody to it. It's got it's tipsy in its rhythm and features a boisterous uh, Stefan de Gut in, in, in this. Tibergian characterizes uh, the piano part well in this piece, isolating certain notes in a way a drunk might accent random words that really aren't the words you want to be accenting. <laughs> It's nice. It's a late set of songs by Ravel. Not heard often enough. I like it. It's nice. These aren't really my favorite um, compositions by him. Um, this sounds a little thin, though, after the sumptuousness of the piano concerto, I have to say. Just hearing, like, a voice and piano. Next, we get uh, Deux Melodies Hébraïques. Um, two Hebrew melodies. The first one is Kaddish, and this is a uh, prayer, a song, a Jewish prayer, sung in Hebrew here, um, praising God. If you're, uh, if you know the uh, Te Deum in Christianity, it's kind of a similar kind of idea. Let's say um, the baritone carries most of the piece. The piano only ringing out bell-like from sounds at certain points of the text. I'm wondering where Ravel got the melody from, if it's original, like from some Jewish service, or, or if it's original, to, if he wrote it himself, or if it actually comes from a Jewish service of some sort. Uh, it sounds like a melody that would be sung at a temple service. It's pretty powerful, and Degout does it justice. The second piece in this is uh, L'Enigme Eternelle, which is uh, the eternal enigma. Uh, this is sung in, uh, I guess, Yiddish. It's German. It looks like German, but I'm guessing it's Yiddish. Um, the piano, So it's a more popular <laughs> song. The piano starts with a repeating figure, bell-like, and it's brief and doesn't have many words. Um, it, it's nice, a little lighter. It's kind of wondering about the, uh, the mystery of the universe. Um, track 9 is a solo piano piece, a very famous one, Pavan pour un infant defunt. Um, this is a piece I played, by the way. Um, to, it's, a, a lot of pianists have. You need big hands to play this piece, though. It's kind of... Mm. Your hands, your fingers get kind of tangled up in this. Anyway, Tibergian plays the uh, original piano solo version from 1899. And he takes a rather fast tempo. And fast tempos disguise emotion or hide emotion. And that's what happens here. Um, again, this is one of the pieces that Ravel said... Um, you just have to play my pieces, don't interpret them. And um, that's exactly what <laughs> Tibergian is uh, doing here. Um, I think I prefer a warmer sound in this. Um, Tibergian's is a hard and shiny sound, like crystal. Mm. I can't complain. I mean, it's a good performance, but I feel like he's in too much of a hurry to get to the end. Um, the harp-like grace notes in the end of the third and beginning of the fourth minutes are quickly but elegantly taken. Those really stood out for me. Um, I like this a little slower, though. Okay. Tracks 10 through 12. I love these songs so much. I originally heard these. Um, this is a Trois Poèmes de Stéphane Malramé. And uh, I originally heard these in their chamber music and soprano version. Dawn Upshaw sang them on her album, uh, The Girl with Orange Lips. 
and uh just the 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 gorgeous like uh orchestrations the the magic that Ravel pulls out of his chamber group is really something to hear in this case it's for uh, the baritone and the piano I've never heard this sung by a baritone before um, and the the piano isn't gonna bring out all those uh, songs that the chamber <laughs> group did but uh, never mind um, it's you know, the, the chamber version is mesmerizing but this one this version for piano and baritone doesn't disappoint uh, Degout is especially good here in the middle of his range where he can produce a smooth even tone the piano figuration is gorgeous and the piece is taken quietly and smoothly without unnecessary drama which is perfect for this piece uh, Ravel's music beautifully reflect, reflects the incomprehensibility yet fascination this kind of hallucinatory quality of Malamé's poetry um they're kind of almost surreal in a way i really love them i love i really do like malame's poetry it doesn't really seem to mean anything it just gives you these weird <laughs> fever feverish visions of things that aren't there anyway second uh, piece uh, placer futile a slower piece than the previous um this means a futile petition futile meaning it's not going to succeed um Again, beautifully realized piano accompaniment. Degout sounds heavier in this piece. I lo- especially liked his sensitivity in the part near the end that starts with the words uh, no menu, so name us. Um, there's some fantastic images in this piece uh, from the uh, poet, Stéphane Malarmé. Yeah, read the lyrics to this. Um, it's it's nice. I liked it a lot. It sounds like something... I, I think Malarmé's poetry really appeals to like college students, at least back in the day when I was in college, because... You know, we were trying to be all we like the surrealists and just these uh odd cute things you could say to girls instead of like being this dopey romantic you wanted to say something original <laughs> that was going to knock them out you know and Marla May seems to have been good at that anyway third piece Surgi de la Coupe du Bond uh, arising from the uh like, oh god I don't know how to print from the uh the whip and the uh the croup I guess I don't know what that is <laughs> The piano has an extended solo at the opening of this song, which strange harmonies are well highlighted by Tabergian. Degout is good again here in the strange texts, in which, like the previous, Mallarmé imagines himself as a mythical figure painted on a ceiling. <laughs> it's fantastic. I love this. I love these poems. Um, this one comes off most abstractly of the set. It's well performed here. It was nice to hear these pieces for baritone and piano, a first for me. You know, looking at these hearing these was wonderful but looking at them again boy I really have lost a lot of my college self <laughs> I just loved all this literature and I still like it but it's it's it just feels more like I feel like I'm more distanced from it now than I was then and that makes me a little sad anyway third track 13 is the concerto pour la main gauche for the left hand um this was written for um I forget who it was it was um Oh, it was um, Paul Wittgenstein, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher's brother, who um, was a professional uh, pianist. Uh, The Wittgensteins were a very highly cultured, arty family. And Wittgenstein lost his right arm in uh, World War I. And uh, he was a professional pianist. So uh, when the war ended, he commissioned a lot of composers to... um, uh, 
come, you know, to write concerti for him so that he could play for one hand. Okay, and this is one of the ones he commissioned. Incidentally, he complained about every single one of them except the one written by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. That one he really liked. <laughs> uh, the the thing he didn't like about this one was that there was too much uh, solo music for him. Like, because the piano plays without orchestral accompaniment for a long period of time, mm. but. That seems to be Ravel's concept because he does the same thing in the previous piano concerto in the second movement. Um, so in this case, um, the low bass line and the deep reed instruments come up sounding really great in yeah. the beginning minute of this recording. Wow, really better than I've ever heard. Um, although you'll have to turn the volume up to really get it. There's a good dimensionality to the orchestra's sound. We reach the big Hollywood entry to the piano at the second minute great sound especially at the low end of the piano which has a dimensionality that goes beyond the surface of the speaker it almost kind of entered the room like a sound yeah. hologram you know it's kind thundering of like a, um waves yeah. just like ripple in on this when the left hand entrance comes in it was like uh you know r2d2 is like predicting you know was projecting princess leia into my room <laughs> you know <laughs> help me obi-wan you're my only hope Anyway, Tabergian plays this with power. It comes across. The piano line softens in the third minute, and it's all solo here at the beginning. This is what Wittgenstein didn't like about the piece <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> um, I like it enough. No problem No problem with me. Uh, glittering figuration at the 4 minute and 30 second mark. We finally hear the orchestra resuming its Hollywood fanfare at 4 minutes and 40 seconds with the piano again um instantly this is written after the war in the i think the 1920s so um the big orchestras were kind of in at the time um big popular music orchestras um so far the two of by the way it's four minutes and 40 seconds into the piece and we haven't heard the piano and the orchestra play <laughs> together yet which is really odd if you think about mm -hmm. it i never really thought about it before but uh Let's see. Low drums come out with impact. The cymbals sizzle, and at six minutes, the piano comes back in, plays a line solo, accompanied by the arpeggiated bass, which again has an extra dimensionality. At the seven minute and 10 second mark of this 18 minute piece, we finally hear the piano and orchestra together, more than a third of the way through the piece. <laughs> Here, the orchestra has the main melody, and the piano plays figuration, but the piano is so upfront that you hear it primarily. Uh, that doesn't hurt the recording, though. Um, the recording is transparent enough that the orchestra can be heard. A marching theme starts at 8 minutes and 25 seconds, and it has a big impact. Incidentally, the piano's very forward placement is probably why that bass uh, at the beginning mm. impacts so much. I And I like it, I gotta say. The piano takes over the thematic marching material right away, and I love Ravel's orchestration. Um the okay yeah the brass accompanying is really great um Tabergian manages to get the bass on his piano to growl at one point in the eighth minute I don't know how he did that <laughs> but the piano is far up front very clear sounding beautiful orchestration for the flutes at the beginning of the tenth minute Ravel wrote and French composers in general wrote, write very well for the flute they understand that it's a they don't think of it as a, as a wind instrument as much as as a breath instrument. Mm. So they give it their flute lines a breathy quality. I really love that. It sounds really sensual to me. Um, gets me all, all hot and bothered, you know? <laughs> anyway. Uh -oh. Anyway. 
Um, the, the, piano be- the piano beautifully blends in with the figuration at the high end. The march continues. The piano is always audible, even when the orchestra is loud. Um, lovely bassoon and trumpet work at 12 minutes and 20 mm. seconds. At 12 minutes and 40 seconds, the winds and piano blend beautifully. Piano gets another uh, solo, quiet this time, in the 15th minute. You want to keep in mind that this is only one hand playing at this point. You can kind of tell it is at the beginning, but here, no, it's uh, the illusion is there that two, you're hearing mm. two hands. The illusion of wide range of frequency is pretty amazing at the 15-minute mark, so pay attention to that. This leads to the last appearance of the March theme in the orchestra and the end of the piece. It's a pretty great performance and a great recording as well, with the piano placed very far forward, but that doesn't hurt it, the recording at all. Okay, the uh, album ends with one more poem by Stéphane Mallarmé called Saint, uh, with an E at the end, which means it's a female saint, I guess. Um, this is a text with compelling images, beautifully sung by Dagut here, piano accompaniment that starts with churchy chords and later starts imitating harp-like arpeggios. It's a brief but lovely work to end the album full of these wonderful Ravel well, you can't really call them orchestrations, but arrangement on the piano. I have no complaints about this album. The recording is excellent, spotlighting the solo instruments, yet picking up exquisite detail from the orchestra in the concertos. The vocal works are sung with warmth and played with the crystalline quality that Ravel's music invites. A real winner, though, perhaps not the best ever recording of the Ravel uh, concerto in G major, but that's no problem. Really great. Yeah, I really love the orchestral works and with piano. I thought the performances were great. Fabulous recording detail. Uh, yeah. Sounds lovely. I'm I'm not as enthusiastic about the vocal works as you. I know that, you know, among Ravel's works, uh, a large portion of his out, of his composition uh, output was uh, for vocal works. It's harder for me to get into them though. Um, I, I much mm. prefer his uh, tone colors in the orchestra and right. and especially the sort of um, the setting of you know the piano tones against the the various other instruments and uh, so it's kind of a first for me hearing these songs and yeah I didn't dislike them but I found myself just waiting to hear the piano and orchestra again <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I maybe would have liked to have these kind of separated yeah, different I, works. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. J- just for me because I'm not, you know, I'm more of an instrumental performance uh, aficionado rather than uh, vocal work. So and maybe I would need to just isolate the vocal works yeah. in order to get I'm a concept really more in my a, mind for them. I myself am more of a one or the other. You know, kind of like yeah. you're gonna listen to vocal, you're gonna listen to vocal. I mean, I'll take like one vocal work right. in a program right. of instrumental music, but when it's kind of like even, there's something really mm. odd about that. It just kind of yeah, you know, because words are important, you know, right, and you want right. to know what what's being sung, so you're concentrating on a a different thing now. Yeah. Okay, so it's and it's so, just it hits a different place. I experienced you know. that kind of push pull, uh, you know, uh, diversion of my attention in the programming itself. That said, I do like to hear a baritone voice a lot, uh, so mm-hmm. I thought his voice was uh, had a lot of charm and uh, brought out the material. Uh, I only listened to this once, so I would have to, you know, go back and focus on uh, the vocal works, which is, you know, a side of Ravel that I know is um, an important part of his works, but I have, you know, not investigated enough myself. Uh, however, uh, I can say that the uh, 
the instrumental works, especially the uh, concerto, and then uh, for the one hand, are you know I don't know if they're the like you say may not be the the best uh, performances, but they are definitely worth hearing, and the recording is uh, intriguing. There's a lot to uh, dig into, uh, and the sonic space will definitely reward you. So, uh, yeah, I think you know we can go on forever with uh, Ravel's. Uh, yeah, one of my sort favorite of catalog composers, I should of say. Uh, yeah. compositions. Uh, there's always something new to discover in them, and uh, yeah, he was definitely a genius of that time, and brought right. so much. Uh, you know, he was absorbing the sounds of jazz and things into his music, and it's always beautiful. Uh, inspiring and always sounds fresh you know even a hundred years later now yeah yeah we can keep listening to this forever right i i agree incidentally there's a new uh recording of ravel's um this is and i'm gonna have to hear this um the cantatas that he wrote to try to win the prix de rome which he never won he he entered i think three times or maybe even more and he never got to win and go to Rome to study as he yeah. wanted to. But uh, someone's finally recorded those works that he, I mean, they're younger works and they're not really in his style, but um, somebody's finally recorded them all. I'm kind of curious to hear yeah. those. I'm, add that to my, um, they're all vocal works, obviously. It's kind of interesting. I was reading up when we were, you know, I was looking, I was trying to place each of these works historically, you know, and see what was going on in his life. See so how it's sort of interesting in a sort of progression in his life with his compositions and what was going on at the time and the, the sort of rivalry that was forced upon him with Debussy and the way yeah. people tried to conceptualize their music. And I just thought it was a real drag um, that yeah. people have to overly compare and, you know, analyze uh, things. And I, I think that put a big weight on his shoulders that people were trying to uh, put all of his compositions into some sort of classifications, and yeah. uh, you know, he didn't really want that kind of. Uh, yeah, Ravel was, um, from what I've read about him, he was a he was just a really enthusiastic person. He just loved everybody else's music. Yeah, he he really yeah. didn't have anything negative to say about anybody else's no. music. He just liked it all. Uh, unlike Debussy, who, like Chopin, didn't like anybody's music unless they were dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And right. he even hated Beethoven. He liked Chopin, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Interesting. He said some nasty things about Beethoven. Debussy <laughs> did not Ravel. Yeah. Ravel never said a bad thing about anybody. He, yeah. he especially loved all the Spanish composers of the time, like Albanese and uh, Manuel mm-hmm. de Falla. And, of course, he wrote a lot of fantastic Spanish works himself. Mm. Um, in fact, the French um, composers were exceptional, had an exceptionally good year for Spanish rhythms. They really picked that up exceptionally well. It's, it's That's a, interesting, yeah. Thing. Yeah, another one of those things that somebody should write a do a doctoral thesis on. <laughs> Why? How do they do that? All right, our last um, uh, classical work for the night is um, a contemporary composer by the name of Eric uh, Tanguy. Now, this this album is called In a Dream, and it's Tanguy's chamber music. Um, played by various artists, I will mention them as they come up, and this is on the Erato label. Um, Erato is the, uh, of course, the, uh, of course, like everybody knows, I actually yeah, memorized these. Now I can't even remember them anymore. She's the um, Greek muse of erotic poetry. Easy to remember, era, erato, er, erotic, right? <laughs> so, Wait a minute. Anyway. Isn't this some um, Warner Classics? Um, 
I think Erato is now owned by Warner Classics, but it's on. Oh, okay, on yeah, Erato. it's interesting it's because kinda, um, yeah, the both of the labels are listed on there. The cover says Erato, and then the the um, yeah. listing is uh, Warner Classics. So that's part yeah. of Warner now. Okay, good to I know guess, for the future. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because Warner Classics stuff comes out as Warner Classics by itself too. It's really confusing. Yeah, hmm. you know, I don't know, but because uh, I think. Um, like Philips and EMI were both acquired by DECA now, and oh, now they're okay. all like on DECA. It's really because oh, wow. I remember like certain recordings being on EMI, and now they're on DECA. It's really Who can keep up with this cor- corporate kind of uh, yeah. cannibalization here? I don't know. Just, just the, the less we say about the Sony label, the better. <laughs> I just got a recording on Sony. It was um, um, Patricia Pettibon, and it's oh. uh, she would have been great for this too. Uh, it's um, just a soprano arias, and um, they kind of presented it. It's on Sony, and they presented it like a, like a pop record. Like it's got this kind of cool picture of her on the cover, yeah. and it's got. And what do you think is in the booklet? Of course, you, you have all these songs, and you have these like descriptions of the songs, but no texts. That drives oh, me crazy because you're spending yeah. money on the CD. You should right. get that. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. I hate when they do that, and so I'm so I'm thinking to myself, oh maybe they're on the website. Nope, <laughs> they oh. just they just present these songs like you got to hey. know the words, you got to know what the songs are about, you know, because they're old. You got to put your head in that space. You I know? think you should uh, lodge a formal uh, complaint or reaction to that as a as someone who probably has more CDs than yeah. anybody else who bought that CD. You should definitely voice your opinion on that. I, I have more CDs than I've had hot meals. That's true. <laughs> anyway. All right. Anyway, Eric Tongi. Um, now, if you're an avid listener to this podcast, you might remember that we did his clarinet concerto on episode 37, Known Unknowns, oh, from yeah. November 15th, 2021. The Rumsfeld now, episode. To... <laughs> what was that? The Rumsfeld episode, yeah. The Rumsfeld episode. <laughs> I don't remember why we called because they were like... Uh, works by unknown yeah, composers. It was a weird vibe on that one. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know. We were digging up names. Anyway, the thing about um I in trying to figure that it took me a good fifteen to twenty minutes to track that episode down because um Amazon Music finally came up with it for me because um, oh. Podbean, our host site, <laughs> couldn't deliver it from the search their search engine. Jeez. Trying to just find information about podcasts. Your own podcast, yeah. I mean <laughs> I mean, do I have to make a special database? It should just come up if I type the name in. Anyway, it's in the description, so should come up. Anyway, Amazon seems to have the best search engine, so congratulations. You win this week's prize, Amazon Music or Amazon Podcasts. Anyway, so we thought uh, that was pretty good. Now, this guy is um, known as a um, primarily modal composer. He uses a lot yeah. of modes in his he's, writing. He's got his and, own sense of harmony that he develops for each work, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. So, he heard the clarinet concerto, and that was only one work. So, I'm thinking, um, okay, well, I'm wondering what this guy's music sounds like. So, we have a set of his uh, chamber music. I figure I could get a better uh, sense of his overall concept from this album. And I, I guess I did. <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. It's kind of, he's, he's a bit elusive, I think. Anyway, this starts out with his uh, quintet for piano and string quartet. And the musicians are Susanna Bartal on the piano. She's going to be on most of these works by the way and the Quattro Diotima who are a pretty well known string quartet they play a lot of contemporary and uh, 20th century 
music. They are Yung Peng Zhao on the violin, Constance Ronzadi on the violin, second violin, Franca Chevalier on viola, and Pierre Morlet on the cello. Um, this piece, um, it's one track and it's one unbroken stretch that falls into three linked sections, which the composer describes as a mysterious opening. I wouldn't call it that. I'd call it more of a spacey. Um, he, he thinks of that as mysterious. It kind of sounds a little bit like hmm. a science fiction-y to me. Uh, early 20th century Viennese expressionism. That's what I thought. You know, something like early Schoenberg's atonal music, but not loud. Then pulsating intensity. And then the second section would be lyrical and contemplative passage. And then uh, the third section, tumultuous, exultant finale at breakneck speed. So the intro and then the pulsating intensity. Anyway, um, this kind of this is kind of a circular opening. The so-called mysterious theme is a bit circular, not unappealing. It goes on to something more solid. And it's not a long stretch to get to the uh, pulsating intensity of the first through the fourth minutes. I like the technique in the fourth minute where piano strings and chords together with scales leading to each chord, like clothes on a line, like you hear like a and then the bang, the chord. Mm. And he does that quite a bit. That seems to be like part of his musical vocabulary. I heard it in other pieces as well. The lyrical contemplative passage is melted into the beginning at the five minute mark. And we're uh, fully into it. This is the second section that he talks about at five minutes and 30 seconds. There's some pretty haunting harmony around the uh, six minute, 40 second to the seven minute mark. And this seems like, uh, it sounds like troubled contemplation, let's say. The strings come across as on edge, though the piano is more or less calm, despite a few chordal outbursts. Lovely haunting harmonics at the eight minutes and 30 seconds to the nine minute mark. And the music starts getting fidgety and agitated at the nine minute mark, and by 928, uh, we launch into the final section, the tumultuous, and he says, exultant finale. I didn't hear this as exultant, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's got kind of a mechanical quality to it, and uh, and it, there's an edge to the rhythm. Um, he he said this is at breakneck speed. I don't think so. Maybe it is, given the figuration mm. that needs to be played. I mean, but um, to the ear, it doesn't sound like that. Uh, it doesn't sound when I think breakneck. I think something is in danger of going off the rails, you right, know, like a right. train that's going to. And that doesn't. This doesn't sound like that. Um, it sounds like an excellent performance, though. Um, so, yeah, the description may be off. Uh, the instrumental combinations are pretty compelling to the ear, so it's a pretty good piece. The next piece, track two, in a dream. This is the title track of the album, written in two thousand four. 2013 to 2014. This is for violin and piano, and the uh, violinist is Alexandra Konunova and Susanna Bartal on the piano again. Now, this piece was commissioned by the uh, Tokyo-based um, violinist Akiko Suenai for her festival in Nagoya uh, for her to play. And um, it's a poetic, turbulent piece. <laughs> he uses that word a lot to describe his music, <laughs> turbulent. It was written in response to Tangi's artistic dialogue with Suanai. Okay, the title alludes to the serene atmosphere of nighttime, although not without a number of more dramatic outbursts. The piece is played in one unbroken stretch as a continuous variation. So it's got a fairly quiet opening, low end ominous chords from the piano and the violin playing melodically, reaching its upper register. The violin gets some really uh, dramatic, powerful melodies to play in this. The piano more or less keeps to this type of accompaniment, occasionally throwing in echoes of what the violin plays. 
But this is very much a work for the violin. It is indeed a set of continuing variations. Uh, the violin plays alone at 255, very pretty crystalline piano chords at around 330, and the violin plays a gentle gossamer thin tone over that, accompaniment over that. By the sixth minute, the accompaniment has dwindled down to individual notes in the piano, and the violin continues its rhapsodizing. The piece ends tranquilly and quietly. It's a nice piece all in all. I think this would grow on me if I heard it a few more mm. times. Um, but the first time I was kind of, you know, had the, the pen in my hand, so, so to speak. So I kind of wasn't really catching it all that. All right, the third track, Spiral, for cello and piano, means spirals. Written in 2016, Edgar Moreau on the uh, cello and Susanna Bartal on the piano. Um, this was um, one of my two favorite works on this album. I liked it right away. Mm. Uh, lively and fast, the idea of the idea of whirlwinds or spirals suggested itself to Tanguy in the writing of the interplay and dialogue between the two instruments. It starts off energetically with the cello playing a circular figure, which seems to be a characteristic of Tanguy's writing because mm-hmm. we heard it in the quintet as well. Um, it snaps into a repeated linear figure, which also happens in the um, quintet. Um, quick changes in this piece. Repeated notes lead to an upward scale, then some repeated circular figuration, and this is all in the first minute of the Quicksilver 6-minute 28-second piece. The piano takes over at a minute and 23 seconds, playing rapidly yet quietly, and the cello joins in. The cello goes into its lower register at the beginning of the second minute and plays pizzicato for a bit. Then by 2 minutes and 41 seconds, he's high up again, and the piano is agitated and thundering out chords and a theme in the higher register. There are some cool sound effects produced by the cello's bow at around the 3-minute mark. Tanguy again has the cello line string a theme across chords in the piano at about 5 minutes and 30 seconds. I like that effect, as I mentioned in the quintet. And the piece culminates in a rapidly approached resolution, excitedly taken at the end. I actually found the piece pretty stimulating throughout. It's fully caffeinated and uh, compelling performance here. I'm also wondering about these kind of circling melodies. I think um, modal harmony tends to really invite that sort of thing, Mm. (laughs) at least the way he uses it here. So we're hearing a bit of that on this album. Fourth uh, track is called Nachtmusik for solo piano. And um, this is Susanna Bartal. What is that? Uh, <laughs> this one uh, reminds me of the many nights when I was like walking home after yeah. a night out, you know, with uh, yeah. inebriation and that kind of slow, <laughs> sleepy night walk home. Oh. Uh, it really captures that kind of ambiance to it. Right. It has a narrative structure. Um, mm. Again, mysterious at the outset. He seems to like this word, mysterious. The dreamy quality gradually gains expressive intensity until the nightscape is permeated with flashes of richly sonorous lightning. Yes. And I mentioned here, this calm to disturb his trajectory seems to be a quality of Tangi's works. He seems to mm. to do that a lot. Um, it's a fairly meditative opening, slightly bluesy, and a lightly swinging rhythm, which is created by the organization of the notes, not by mm-hmm. the... Uh, rhythm the pianist is imposing on the piece or anything like that so it's not really a jazzy piece it's about seven minutes long and um the uh meditative uh, material clouds up in the first minute as more agitated material takes over and expands the agitated material suddenly disappears at two minutes and 30 seconds as the piano quietens uh there's a brief crescendo and decrescendo then the third uh then at the third minute chords come thundering out 
They dissipate, and we're into the higher end of the piano in the fifth minute with crystalline chords, reminiscent of to Bergian and the recent uh, mm. um, recording we heard, the previous recording. I should mention this piece is very chordal with a lot of pedal point bass notes yeah, that don't last that long, really, but they, they hold for a while as the chords change over them. Uh, slowly changing over the wandering material in the upper voices. Again, that modal harmony allows the, uh, cl- the, cl- the chords to float over the pedal bass. It's fine. It has an appeal. I don't know. I got to hear this again, I think. Mm. It was good. Fifth um, piece is called a Rhapsody for Viola and Piano. Yeah. And uh, this is Lise Berthaud on the Viola and Susanna Bartal on the Piano. Um, so it's a rhapsody. Um, has an overriding sense of melancholy. And the composer mentions that the viola song... Um, oh, no. Th- I'm thinking of something different here. Hold on. Okay. This has this is a longish piece. Actually, 10 minutes and 21 seconds. And right away, just the hearing the viola... Um, appear right at the beginning with its darkish register um, is pretty exciting. You don't really get to hear this instrument much in this context with a solo solo with a piano. Um, the viola plays solo from around a minute and 40 seconds on for a while. There's a bit of passion in the viola at around the 2 minute and 30 second mark. And the piano accompaniment echoes a lot of what the viola plays. We've heard this in um, some of the previous works as well. Um, the piano is alone at three minutes fifty seconds. Again, this is sort of like um, the, uh, the the uh, cello and the violin piece. You know, the, he'll often ha- give the uh, two instruments like some time alone. Um, then it plays chords in the bass and in broken up harmonic chord-like figures in the upper range. There's a nice run up the keyboard, then back down from four minutes twenty seconds to four minutes and forty seconds. With the viola imitating and occasionally squeaking its approval, <laughs> I kind of like the, the viola's little remarks in there. Uh, the viola plays lyrically after that. Uh, it and the piano get many brief solo sections in this 10-plus minute span of this piece, and it ends rather tranquilly. It was good. I like this a lot. Track 6 through 8, Sonata Breve for solo violin. This is played by Alexandra Konunova. And the uh, movement titles speak for themselves. The first movement is called Lyrique. And uh, the violin is passionate here as well as lyrical. There are a lot of um, slight glissandos sliding into the note that I found pretty compelling in this movement. Uh, The modal quality of Tanguy's writing stands out in a solo piece like this just for the violin. You can hear it pretty clearly. Uh, The violin sounds caught in its space as it floats between tones for most of the movement. The second uh, movement is called Etrange, or Strange. <coughs> Excuse me. It has a quiet, evocative opening. Fairly minimal material with a few warmer, longer-held tones. There's a lot of double-stopping in this and the previous movement. This starts at a minute and ten seconds or so, and there are nice, quiet trill fades to end the movement. Hmm. Just need a little drink there, getting a dry throat. <laughs> okay. Third movement, vertiginous. Vertiginous. This has a perpetual motion quality to it. The violin races through its motoric material. Melodic ideas outlined between repeated note figuration. Generates quite a bit of energy and excitement, and Kononova plays exceptionally well through all three movements. Track nine, Lacrimosa, which is part of the um, uh, Catholic uh, Mass's Requiem, or for the Mass for the Dead. Um, this is for clarinet and piano. 
And uh, Pierre Genisson makes a, an appearance here. He was the uh, clarinet soloist of the clarinet mm. concerto that we talked about in November. So he's back here for this piece. And Susanna Bartal on the piano. Um, this piece was written, um, well, it was finished the day after Henri Dutilleux, one of the great composers of the 20th century, who Tanguy knew, died. So it's got this sense of melancholy to it. Jenison, um, let's see, gives a quiet atmospheric opening with gorgeous clarinet tone over the mid-range piano arpeggiation. This is a good example of the composer writing for the tone of the instrument. He really captures this well. Tanguy captures the strengths of the clarinet's various tones, and a quiet section goes on for about three minutes. Then the music gets more agitated, and the clarinet plays buzzing trills at around three minutes and 45 seconds and afterwards. I like the arpeggiated piano accompaniment, which sets the clarinet off well. Uh, the floating modal harmony suits the clarinet's tone well, too. And this is another work that, for me, stood out. So I liked the cello, the cello work, this one, and uh, Spiral for cello, and this one, Lacrimosa. Those are my two favorites, so those would be the ones to listen to if you don't have much time, if you want to sample. The 10th track and last track is a trio for violin, cello, and piano. Completely, well, different musicians here except for one. Uh, Rosanne Philippens plays the violin. Edgar Moreau is back on the cello. And uh, David Cadbuch on the piano this time. Um, this um, piece's inspiration comes from Tanguy's close friendship with uh, Cecilia Tsan, who is a French-born cellist who's apparently of Chinese descent. And... Um, uh, it's a continuous variation of tiny motif of six notes, and the motif generates the entire harmonic basis over which the work unfolds. So, like a Beethoven piece, I guess. Um, this starts out with the rhythm and triplets in the piano, followed by wispy statements from violin and cello. One of the appealing things about this piece is how it's going to change from 6-8 to 4-4 four, four very often, or 3-4 mm. four to 4-4. Four, four. I, I didn't really count it that closely. Uh, the piano material is crystalline and initiates a lot of what the cello and violin play. There's a brief dramatic episode at the beginning of uh, 1 minute and 40 seconds, and we're back to quiet tones again. Then a new conversation starts, the violin piano melodic, the piano introducing material that the violin and cello repeat and expand on. Then in 3 minutes we switch to 4-4 four, four, with the piano marking time, He's playing on all 4 beats to really underline that. Another adventurous episode at four minutes. It sounds like we're now in 6-8. 4-4 returns in the fifth minute with wispy, drawn-out lines by the uh, strings. Please try to notice these uh, rhythm changes. It'll make the piece more interesting to you. Uh, the violin gets the spotlight at the beginning of the sixth minute, and then the cello briefly takes over. They play together again. The piano seems to end the section and begin another one at around minute seven, which begins with the piano in, in its bass range. Uh, the new section is filled with rapid bowing tremolo effects on the strings. This is like after the seventh minute. And building piano volume. Then goes into a repeating pattern for a while. It breaks out at 8 minutes and 30 seconds or so with a downward moving figure. Higher energy repeating figures below, quickly switching from one figure to a new one. Uh, the material at the end caught my ear. Interesting held harmonies by the strings, link chords in the piano, and it has an emphatic ending. So all in all, listening to this recording, I uh, got a bit more insight into Tanguy's approach to music. I sort of want to go back and listen to the clarinet concerto again mm. after hearing this. Um, the performances here are all excellent. The works themselves are good. 
And I think they may grow on me over time. I kind of feel like when I'm listening to these, like I'm missing something. Um, and I think it's me. I don't think it's the recording. I think I'm kind of like, there's, there's something there that's not really connecting with me that I have to kind of figure out or just mm. let go and let take over me or something like that. Um, so um, uh, this composer, it's a little frustrating for me. He has my ear. But I'm not really getting it. You know what I mean? I want to, so I guess I have to hear more. I have some idea about that. Um, I, yeah. I think, you know, he is uh, a composer who's trying to work out his own kind of musical language in the yeah. contemporary landscape of things. And my my take on this, he he's a very rhythmic uh, composer. So all of these works incorporate lots of development and uh, variety of uh, rhythms in here. So all, all of the pieces have some rhythmic elements that we'll explore. And there's some traditionalism in the phrasing and development of his works too. So you, you'll hear ideas that are uh, expanded upon and brought back uh, and in the phrasings. It's, it's all very traditional uh, like that, but what he's doing is experimenting a lot with, you know, harmonies uh, mm. in these kind of modal things, or kind of discovering a new kind of harmonic language uh, based on some ideas, and then of course the melodies are adapted to that. And I think that's where uh, I find the challenge in his music that it doesn't meet my expectations based on what I hear in the lines that go through. Not not. That's a good or bad thing, but it challenges me uh, to listen to that. Uh, one thing, uh, let's see, which one was it? Uh, I think it's like in a dream. Um, hmm. When that when I listen to that piece, uh, it, it sets this very dreamy atmosphere that matches the title. It has these kind of lush harmonies that he develops, and I feel like the melodies, the way they move. I hear them and my mind sort of completes the phrase into something more pretty, but they can't become that. And <laughs> so it, it, it's sort of like I'm setting up expectations for where the movement of melodic ideas right. go, but they don't go in that direction because he has something else uh, planned uh, based on his mm -hmm. ideas. Uh, however, there's a lot to hold on to in the structure and especially the rhythms. Uh, you know, I think the last, uh, which piece is the last one? In the piano trio, um, it's sort of built on these six note sort of motif figure, um, which seems like a very limited type of construction, you know, based on what the uh, album notes say. Yeah. He really does amazing things out of you know, expanding on that figure and then uh, the harmony that's constructed around that. And, you know, he builds sort of a conventionally composed piece around this sort of new idea. Uh, so it sounds very familiar and at the same time defies your expectations of what's going to come out of it. And <laughs> that's what I think is sort of the paradox in his music. It's frustrating but intriguing at the same time. Yeah, but I would think with repeated listenings, those frustrated things would just become like you expect 
did because you've heard it so many times. Exactly. You know? It may very well do that. Yeah. So I think that you can, on a first listen, you'll only be hooked in by the familiar elements of it. And you may have to listen more times once you become comfortable with his language and the conventional elements. And then you can look deeper and to see, you know, what unique sort of compositional ideas he's exploring underneath those kind of ideas. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting, you know, contemporary composer now uh, that gives you a kind of interesting new harmonic language, uh, enough compositional and traditional sort of uh, development that you can hold on to uh, where the pieces are going to. But yet there's some things that you'll have to figure out in your mind and explore as you listen to the directions that the music goes as he takes it. Uh, it's kind of intriguing. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I'd be willing to give these an extra few times to listen and see what else I could gain from them uh, as I listen to them. Yeah, I want to say one more thing. When I listened to this album, it went by really fast. I was like, oh, yeah. that's it. It's over. It, and mm -hmm. it was. It's, it's not because it's short or anything. It's right. about an hour long. Um, is actually I think it was around the 70 minute mark or something like that which is pretty normal for right. a classical recording yeah. so I'm kind of so um, it must have been compelling enough to make the time go by that yeah. rapidly and that's another <laughs> element to like wow you know I guess I was really kind of yeah. absorbed or drawn in anyway and I think so, too as a French composer yeah. he's very sensitive to the kind of uh, timbre of the instruments and so we've got a lot right. of variety here you know violin and then viola, which is always sort of uh, left to the side a bit, and then uh, clarinet. Um, yeah, I especially got that piano. with the viola and clarinet. Yeah, that, it's you know that timbral kind of like so, right. Yeah, so I think he's um, interesting well. in that it's not just timbre, but he's interested in the sort of capabilities of each instrument too, and bringing out some uniqueness because these works are all very different. And so rather than sort of conforming the instruments to his style, he seems to be investigating what those instruments are capable of expressing uh, in their own, you know, unique uh, capabilities and strong points. When I like that too. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, th I think there's a lot, there's a lot to, uh, explore in his uh, compositions and I just kind of scratched the surface on this listening right okay that's the French that's what uh, getting French uh, brings out of the music to you yeah yeah and now we're going to get French with a bit of uh, that that uh, rhythm there yeah the jazzy rhythm well we're going to yeah. go to the jazz thing now <laughs> yeah. so I approach this a little different than I usually pick so I'm I'm uh, you know, well, there's some really good stuff here, and then I'm a little befuddled uh, in, in some of this too. Um, so we'll see what it brings out. I've always got a few French things um, on my list, and so when we decided to go all French for this episode, I just uh, picked some. I went by variety and newness, and um, yeah, we're going to get some mixed results here. Uh, the first one is going to give us, uh, yeah, something. Uh, kind of hard to talk about but I think I like this album and it's kind of uh, interesting and that's um, uh, we've got uh, trombone that that was the other thing you know you only get a limited yeah. uh, number of things on trombone although I, I have enough for another trombone episode now uh, anyway with French trombone this one stuck out and uh, this is by the young uh, 
French trombonist Robinson Corey. And uh, his second release uh, as a leader, uh, Broken Lines. And this is on the Gaia <laughs> Music Production label. a good title label. for this album, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this came back out in uh, April. Uh, this is uh, about two and a half years after his first uh, recording, Frame of Mind. And he comes back with this uh, very interesting mix of, of material for this album. He's only 27 years old. And uh, well, this is a, the kind of description release note says he explores a dense and deep musical universe. And I'd say I, I agree with that. There's a lot going on here. Anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting and difficult to explain uh, a bunch of compositions here. Uh, so we've got Corey on trombone, of which he has virtuosic technique and monstrous chops. Uh, and uh, accompanying him, we've got Pierre. Terragio on guitars and also voice. And I should mention, Corey also um, contributes his voice and singing qualities to this album in some interesting places. Uh, we've got Marc Priore, piano, Etienne Renard on bass, and Elie Martin Charirer on drums and also voice. So there's some vocal things happening on this album. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. I'm going to do my best to explain it. But what I should say is his his approach here and what he's doing is largely in uh, sort of a compositional approach. And it's very non-standard in terms of, you know, like uh, jazz composition where we'll get, you know, sort of... Uh, verse, chorus, verse, and things with uh, bridges and things like that. So he's uh, being very creative and uh, designing things in the composition realm, which sort of defy your expectations. And so when you're listening to the sort of flow of the material, it's kind of hard to uh, uh, see patterns and things in here. There's a lot of original things popping up in all of the tunes. Anyway, Let's take a run through what we've got here. Uh, track one is uh, Cubism, and that's with a K, K-U-B-I-S-M. Uh, it starts out with kind of uh, repeated piano patterns of eighth notes, and then uh, Corey comes in with a legato trombone line over the top of that. Uh, there's heavy bass and piano hits that come in uh, to accent some sections and cymbals uh, washing around in the background there. Uh, the trombone and uh, piano lines morph into patterns with different notes. Corey overdubs uh, another trombone line in a very high altissimo register. Um, there's some lightly percussive guitar figures in the left channel that stick out in your ear, if, especially if you're listening to it in headphones. At about one minute, a new fast tempo rhythm emerges in repeated patterns uh, in the piano and guitar. Uh, it becomes like a five beat meter. Corey adds a new melody line, uh, punchy bass backgrounds or brass backgrounds uh, on the bone uh, there too. Uh, more, the I bone. think, overdub <laughs> tracks there, yeah. Uh, it transforms a bit uh, with bigger hits and drum fills. Then it transitions to another feel with more rhythmic piano chords, a new trombone line with rising intervals uh, that works into an intense soaring trombone line. Uh, it keeps building. At about four minutes, it becomes very frantic. Uh, there's a sudden pause, then it resets more softly uh, with acoustic guitar faintly in the background and affected trombone lines that pan left and right, then become a bed of soft 
articulated rhythmic notes. Out of that comes a final section with a trombone solo line over a walking bass uh, with high piano and guitar notes. Uh, anyway, it's hard to describe what's going on here with the constant evolution of rhythms and sections, uh, but uh, it's yeah. constantly refreshing itself uh, compositionally, uh, moving towards uh, whatever goals he's seeking musically. And uh, certainly the trombone playing is uh, virtuosic. Yeah, I wrote it uh, 4 minutes and 32 seconds that when it suddenly quiets down, there's a lot of busy, quiet interplay between brass instruments, kind of like there's a secret life being lived with them. Yeah. I don't know what I mean by that, but uh, maybe you could listen and figure it out. Yeah, you got to listen to this um, because yeah. a, a lot of what, like I say, the key of what he's doing here is is sort of a compositional exploration. Um and so you've got to be attuned to the quick changes and new sections that constantly emerge in the directions he's trying to take uh, each of these songs. Uh, anyway, number two, distancing from reality. Uh, this one, uh, some claps, hand claps that is set the beat at the beginning for soft basing guitar rhythmic figures. Uh, it sounds like one measure of four and then a measure of three. So you get kind of the seven beat feel to it. Uh, Corey blows a soft lyrical melody over the top of that. Uh, he has a great singing kind of tone on the trombone uh, that's appealing. There's a break at about one minute. The piano joins in with lots of huge cymbal splashes and drum fills behind. Then Corey adds a lower and heavier melody here before soaring up higher again. Around two minutes, there's another little break and a piano solo from Priore. Uh, his left hand is soft, uh, with rhythmic, clear, articulated lines and runs in the right hand. Uh, Charrier works up some tight drum fills behind as the piano solo builds in intensity. And then Correa as a kind of snaking modal line on top with a trombone with high shakes uh, on those notes. Uh, it breaks down to just trombone over guitar figures. Uh, and he mixes kind of rhythmic and then soaring trombone lines over that. And the rest of the rhythm section joins back in for a slow but determined push to the end uh, with a new beat emphasis on the final lines. Uh, track three, Emptiness Monochrome. Uh, this one <laughs> has a solo trombone intro some interesting syncopated interval lines. Eventually the bass uh, joins in on the lower line with him, and then there's some light uh, cymbals in there too. Uh, Terry Gill has a skittish little guitar solo, then Corey joins back in, works into a section of repeated low growling notes with ascending piano pickup licks, or piano licks on top of that. Uh, there's a new, more lyrical section that emerges with deep bowed bass and a melody outlined in both trombone and piano. It builds into a full volume theme for a while uh, before it returns to the interval melody idea. Then there's a new section with repeated one note bass and a distorted guitar solo some panning distorted trombone muted notes uh, in lines uh, that uh, sort of together with the guitar bleed this angsty feeling. Uh, that gives way to a lighter but intense piano solo of runs uh, with Kauri sometimes uh, joining in on backing figures. Trombone is back for a final full blast theme over intense drumming and it drops off into a final interval statement uh, for the ending with guitar. 
uh, now we've got uh, there's a two kind of pieces on here and this is the first one Estamp number one uh, guitar intro here with eerie bass bowing sounds and a high voice uh, human voice that is that makes an intent a kind of tense atmosphere into some piano chords and more uh, whale call like bass bowing uh, <laughs> the bow bass gets a Good solo yeah over the piano chords then Conroy joins in on uh, sometimes uh, adding muted effects sometimes moving with the bass uh, then adding uh, high crying sounds uh, before joining the bass for final lines to the end uh, it, this tune kind of stays amorphous uh, through the whole progression uh, of the tune uh, track five Kasaya a hand drum sounding beat and this is like a kalimba type sound here i don't know if it's a guitar it's like, effect or what's going it on it sounds like that thumb piano like that yeah, yeah that's what it sounds kalimba, like yeah. uh, that makes an intro for a percussive and fuzzy bass to join in uh as well on uh these uh, kind of muted fuzzy guitar things too it works into a hypnotic vamp that piano and trombone uh add unison lines over there's a section of high vocalizations and then back to the trombone and piano with other little surprises before everyone joins together with multiple voices and uh, vocalizations. The lines have an Arabic modal quality. Uh, the voices and trombone work into some ascending and descending slurring lines, and then Curry emerges with an edgy trombone solo. After some high vocal uh, wailing, it moves into a new melodic section over more rhythmic piano figures and then returns to the bass vamp ideas from the beginning for some final playful improvisations on the trombone and answers from guitar and piano. Track six, Breaking the Lines. Uh, There's a vocal piece in English over guitar and bass. Uh, it's rubato with guitar mirroring the vocal melody. Piano and cymbals also add some backing and fills between the phrases. At uh, two minutes and and a half or so Kauri blasts in with the trombone uh, it stills uh, kind of moving rubato and then comes back down softly with the trombone coming to replace the vocal melody a piano and guitar trade off improvisations as a beat forms in the drums then Kauri returns on trombone as the beat kind of turns rubato again uh, there's a final vocal verse um, and uh, Breaking the lines, the image of this uh, kind of tune. Uh, the lyrics say, uh, Oh, how I wish I could slow down. And then in a spoken voice, uh, But life decides it won't stop going faster than before. Hmm. Uh, you think the tune would end there, but sort of <laughs> uh, embodying that idea, uh, there's some frantic drumming. Uh, and uh, kind of a uh, speedy final trombone line to finish it off uh, so life doesn't slow down but actually speeds up at the end of this tune. Track seven, To Do, To Do. Uh, <laughs> this has some pulsing descending vocalization figures that make an intro. After a breathy pause, a bass solo emerges over these vocalizations. There's another pause, um, and then bass and piano work soft unison lines over the voices that speed up and slow down to the end. Uh, and track eight is uh, sort of a uh, 
part two coming from track four, a stomp at number two, a short tune of only two minutes, angular trombone lines with some disparate and dissonant piano and guitar between phrases get things going. Uh, finally, Kauri gets momentum and breaks into an angsty solo uh, with some tricky figures and rips on the trombone before finishing off with another angular line. Uh, goes into track nine, Moods. It's a longer one. A dreamy ostinato bass and piano line set of mood with some cymbal washes. Kauri's trombone and a distorted guitar work together on a melody that has some scoops in pitch. Uh, Corey emerges with a solo line that has uh, some interesting vocal-like crying qualities to it. Uh, a heavier driving drum beat develops as guitar and trombone join in again into a, a percussive piano solo over low grungy guitar chords. Corey adds angry low backing notes to push it along until a quiet reset at about four minutes. The bass takes over with some interesting rhythmic solo lines under Corey's legato notes, then continues on over the soft drums, piano, and guitar. The trombone returns for a bit, and uh, then there are some spacey electronic sounds that fade into a drum solo at about six minutes. Grungy distorted guitar intrudes like a monster breaking through a wall. <laughs> I think pulsing, I said something similar yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> pulsing single note bass line comes in. Kauri enters too with some electronically distorted trombone and he emerges with a new clear uh, trombone tone on a line of uh, improvisations and then uh, working with the guitar into a final melody line that reaches the end with a ripping phrase. Mm. Um, we've got uh, number 10, a stomp number three, uh, another short track, rhythmic piano figures and uh, then melody make a bass for contrasting distorted bass and trombone blasts. Uh, there's some more plungery trombone and bass uh, that turn pretty for a final strain to the end. Track 11, Circled Blocks. Uh, this is a muted long trombone blasts over rhythmic guitar and bass figures to start. Things keep changing up with rhythmic surprises and piano added into the mix. Surprising syncopation and running lines keep emerging as it builds with more open trombone, no mute then. Uh, Renard and Sharia keep it tight with interlocking bass and drums. The trombone melody modulates around and there are chiming descending piano lines. At about two and a half minutes, a new dreamy high trombone line and synthy guitar. Uh, floats and a new drum beat and bass come in. There's a lot of complex rhythmic interplay under the floating modal trombone cries. Things soften as Kauri becomes more rhythmic and the beat drops moving into about five minutes. Motion starts and stops and then some vocalizations and speaking voices or spoken voices rhythmically play around uh, until the end with a bass hit and a laugh by <laughs> all involved. <laughs> Track 12, the final track, You and I, we get a slow uh, vocal count in uh, to four uh, beats here. Uh, guitar, muted plucking, and piano set a dreamy ambiance over long bass notes for an another English vocal number. Uh, it's a pretty melody, Sail Away, You and I. Hmm. Uh, guitar adds some interesting backing affected ideas. Uh, Kauri takes a trombone solo that has a lonesome crying sound, and then he returns for another verse. Um, the melody that he's written and sings here has hmm. some very big 
interval jumps that almost get him yodeling uh, here. But, uh, you know, obviously he's not a vocalist uh, in Maine, uh, and though his uh, emotion that he conveys through it is kind of endearing uh, in uh, the charm of it all. And uh, so that ends the program. It's a very adventurous project compositionally. Um, he's going through lots of uh, changes in these pieces, not conforming to you know traditional uh, structures, really. There's lots of unexpected changes. Um, the instrumentation is interesting. Uh, his trombone solos are all virtuosic. He's got a huge range, uh, lots of technique. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge to follow what's going on all the time, but he's got big ideas and he's young, lots of energy. I like that he incorporates a lot of modal things in here too. Um, yeah, kind of interesting. It'll keep you on your toes uh, to listen to this uh, trombone adventure. Yeah, and as you said, uh, you really need to uh, hear this to really get what it sounds like because it is hard yeah. to describe. Yeah. It's a pretty adventurous album with a, with a surprisingly pretty ending. Like you and yeah. I, the very last track was kind of a bit of a surprise there. Yeah. It's, it's a challenge, not very straightforward. Um, to me, though, in the French fashion, I thought the overall timbre of the instruments plays a large role in communicating this music. Um, a lot of the themes are angular. Time signatures, as I said, are not straightforward. And when they are straightforward, like if it's a, if you're getting a straight four floor, it's going to be a really aggressive four yeah. floor. Now, this is, it's a it's a pretty adventurous album. Uh, you remember maybe at the beginning of the week when I heard it, I really wasn't up for this because yeah, I was having I a rough yeah. day. Yeah. And then I put this on. I was like, oh, this really isn't what I need yeah. to be hearing yeah. now, you know? Yeah, it's but not I did easy listen listening. To, I am a professional, and I listen to it uh, with my, uh, you know kind of musical ears there um it's it's good um aggressive dark and i think it was kind of a meaningful album but in a bleak way i don't really think this comes off as being a very positive statement mm. although the last track is i don't know yeah. it's it's something compelling a little bit of an adventure but i'm not going to return to this i don't think it's not that it's bad it's just kind of i don't really want to feel like this all the time is the thing yeah I don't know. Um, it's an exploration, and I like that yeah. he um, puts out. It's you know, exciting. It's an exciting yeah, record. With and um, like you said, lots of great virtuosity in it. And, yeah, and yeah. this kind of mix of Good these vocal ideas. things. And what, what's interesting, most of all, is that you know he's doing this on trombone, um, so it's not. We don't hear enough trombone anyway, but that yeah. we don't. When we hear trombone, we sort of have this locked-in concept of oh, it's going to do this and that, and so he's kind of actually really pushing. Uh, the boundaries of kind of composition and uh, other ideas uh, and then adding trombone into that. And um, yeah, so it, it's sort of outside of the box of, you know, the normal kind of uh, jazz idea. But, you know, I think it's interesting. A trombone player should hear it for his uh, great technique. And if you're looking for something uh, a little bit pushing, mixing in sort of uh, modern or modern modal kind of ideas and then... Uh, maybe some other ethnic influences in there. Uh, yeah, it's worth a listen and uh, exciting. Uh, I'll probably check it out again, and I'd be yeah. interested to see what he does next since he's kind of uh, young and full of all these ideas. Yeah. I don't think this that album will annoy the neighbors the way that uh, Pederis Vasques, that early Pederis <laughs> Vasques piece would. No. no. It's just adventurous. It's really yeah. hard-hitting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, check it out. I... Uh, mm up and coming and uh, new co I like new concepts even if you know it takes me a while to get used to them uh, somebody who's you know especially um, I think the 
for a while now, I've thought that the thing pushing jazz forward, uh, since there's so many great you know, y- young players who have mastered the techniques now that jazz has become something academic that you can study, is sort of new ideas in composition and concepts. So when I hear mm-hmm. someone who's going to take things in a new direction uh, with his compositions and this sort of whole envelope of sounds around that, I'm, I'm pretty interested uh, generally. And uh, this one moved me in that way. Hmm. All right, now we're going to go uh, swing a little bit traditional, but also fresh at the same time. Uh, probably my top pick of this week's three. Uh, yeah, and, and because mine, mine too, and the one I probably should have listened to when I listened to the Corey. <laughs> <laughs> because we love organ, and uh, so this was on my uh, fr- on my list with French in the uh, tags, and so I said, "Well, we got to get this one out." And uh, this is uh, Matthew. Marthore, and uh, I guess he labels this project uh, that he's involved in as Springbok. Um, so it's Matthew Marthore Springbok, uh, and the title of the album is Involutions, and uh, this is on the We See Music label. <laughs> nice name. Came out last month. Um, so we've got an organ quartet here, and we've got uh, Marthore. On our beloved Hammond organ. Yes. Uh, and uh, we've got an, someone we've heard before, uh, the French uh, trumpeter, and he's also on flugelhorn on this release, uh, Julien Allure. And we heard him back uh, with his own solo album on episode 53. Uh, that was our episode entitled All Horned Up. Uh, and his uh, <laughs> album Light in the Box on Vita Productions. Uh, we like that album a lot, and so it's nice to hear him again. We've got American-born, but now uh, living in France, uh, tenor sax and bass clarinetist Robbie Marshall, because he's originally from the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and rounding out the ensemble, uh, Thomas Delors on drums. And, uh, well, this is a really fun album. Uh, I really like... Uh, Mothere's concept, uh, he doesn't really, this is not like a soul jazz kind of album. He's got his own kind of concept and he's not a show off at all uh, and really serves the music. And he's got all original compositions uh, here. And uh, so uh, he's also a pianist and uh, he's born in uh, Grenoble in the French Alps. And well, he's a uh, Played around in France, uh, did some time in New York, and now uh, currently residing in uh, Paris. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, organ work, uh, kind of inspired by the hard bop and blue note records of the 60s. Uh, but I think he's got his own thing going here. And uh, let's see, he's got a number of recordings out. Uh, he's got uh, Reg 2001 Connections 2005. And... Uh, I guess uh, reading on the notes of uh, his sort of recording history, uh, having a hard time getting a bass player uh, for lots of recordings, that uh, that kind of inspired him to take up uh, <laughs> Hammond more, where uh, you can take up the bass with your own bass pedals. Um, and uh, he also um, won, uh, let's see, the Lavoisier scholarship in 2002 that brought him to New York to study for a year at the New School uh, University there. And uh, so he's moved on from there, uh, keeping uh, organ uh, as one of his main uh, output vehicles. And so 
uh, here we've got uh, this interesting recording, uh, all original compositions by him. And we start out with a pigeon on a chessboard for track one. Uh, this one starts with a drum pickup into an eight bar intro, syncopated horn and organ note hits. Uh, things soon get swinging on trumpet and sax melody. The organ floats in a step nicely for another line underneath. Uh, there's contrasting B section to the melody uh, before part of the A section comes back. Trumpet and tenor sax then uh, have an improvised conversation over Martha Ray's bass pedals and Dolores drumming. Uh, Martha Ray gradually helps build it up with some organ chord hits. Uh, the horns end it up kind of coming together on the original melody lick and then uh, there's an organ solo. Uh, the organ sounds really big in the recording. I like the full capture of the tone of it. Uh, but he plays very relaxed. Uh, lots of spaced out phrases. Uh, the horns come in on backing lines for support and then everyone joins in for a run through the melody again with a few repeats of the penultimate phrase to build tension. Track two is called Open Air, and this one starts with an intro of some descending and then intervallic pentatonic organ notes uh, played percussively. After a little pause, uh, Martha Ray gets things going with pairs of three rising notes outlining an eight-beat feel in the rhythm. Uh, there's a slinky flugelhorn and bass clarinet line. Uh, hmm. This is like a lullaby that come in for the melody on top, while Delore mixes little subdivisions and bigger hits on drums underneath. Uh, Martha Ray has some nice moving foot pedal bass lines between the horn phrases here. The harmonies in the tune are interesting. Uh, Allure is up first for a, a solo. Then uh, Martha Ray adds percussive chord hits and little swells behind his flugelhorn lines over the slow groove that's kept with the foot pedals. Uh, Martha Ray gets a solo next, and you can tell by now, we're into the second track, he is not a show-off player, uh, but rather carefully works out his ideas. Uh, I like the little peppering of staccato notes in his solo, uh, in contrast to the other lines. The horns slink back in for some backing lines that tie into the melody uh, to the end. Uh, and then Marshall uh, reminds you that he's on bass clarinet here uh, at the very end with a little descending figure on the final hold uh, at the end of the tune. Track three is called Fragments. Uh, it has swinging fragments of horn lines that alternate with measures of drum fills over held organ notes for the minor melody. Uh, it ends in a little break for Marshall to show or, or rather to start his solo on tenor sax on this tone. Uh, Martha Ray is walking out an intense bass line on the pedals, adding chord hits to cheer uh, Marshall on in his solo. Laura's next on trumpet, uh, tying his lines together nicely while mixing up the rhythms in his phrases. Uh, Martha Ray comes up again, uh, then uh, an organ. I like the way he uses a lot of hesitation on the start of phrases in his solo. Uh, then he trades off with Delore for some drum solo spots. And finally, they run through the fragmented uh, constructed melody again to finish things up. Uh, four is called Hymn. And this has an organ pickup entrance to a, this slow, loping, gospel-y tune. Martha Ray carries it from the start with an improvised melody. Uh, legato harmonized horn lines uh, form on top. Marshall gets a sassy tenor sax solo, 
Next, with Martha Ray giving great swelling gospel backing lines to that, uh, the horns then merge into a new melody line that has some varied rhythms into three long held notes to milk it at the end with Delore pounding out some uh, final drum beats. Track five is called Roots. That's also listed as DW Part One. This is a very short piece, just over two minutes. Uh, it starts with a call and response conversation between trumpet and sax that get it going with a quirky figure of tricky intervals and rhythms. Uh, they merge into a melody line incorporating the figures and longer harmonized notes uh, while the Lord beats out a busy 6-8 groove. It breaks up with sax and trumpet doing uh, kind of Q&A phrases with the organ this time uh, before the organ sustains and the horns keep lines going over the top of it. The horns and organ trade off again and it gets more intense as it pushes to the end. Uh, it's a short, mostly composed piece with no real solos, but the arrangement is very cool. Hmm. Uh, then we get, uh, I don't know, my French pronunciation is not so good. Prelude, prelude and, and Ut Ut Yeah, a Prelude in C minor. This is based, uh, this is um, his own, uh, Mothra's own composition based on uh, Chopin's Prelude uh, number 20, opus 28. Uh, flugelhorn and bass clarinet. Oh, yeah, we've got to get that bass clarinet in. Yeah. Uh, start together. Organ and bass clarinet yeah. on the same album. Yeah, oh, great. Twist my arm. They come in together <laughs> for an intro on this slow waltzing tune. Uh, Allure takes over for the melody with a nice fluffy tone. Uh, Marshall adds a soft high counterline before taking a section of the melody for himself. And uh, Mothere has been uh, playing soft support, but comes in with a full tone next for a solo with some classically influenced phrases. He brings out a little bit of a Chopin-ness in that uh, solo there. And Marshall is next with a legato bass clarinet solo, gets down low, then up high, before he goes down low again and suddenly getting back to the melody in the upper register of the instrument. Uh, kind of uh, lots of jumps he makes here. Then Allure gets the final strain on trumpet or uh, flugelhorn here with uh, Marshall harmonizing to uh, Martha's final church-like chord uh, to end this one out. Yeah. Track seven, Whirls, a little drum intro to some call and response riffs between sax and trumpet that then join together on the minor melody. It's got an intense 6 eighth driving beat that Delore kicks up as it builds with swelling chords from Martha Ray. Uh, Martha Ray gets the first solo and then Allure is next. Uh, Martha Ray has some nice footwork going on in the bass pedals and works up some uh, walking bass lines here. Also more percussive chords behind uh, Marshall's tenor solo that follows. They work back into the call and response melody, which comes down and then builds back up uh, to the end with Allure taking it up a bit higher in the range uh, at the end. Uh, then we get track eight, Time. This is uh, DW part two, another short two minute track. This is another version um, with the basses from track five, but a little bit simpler riff in the horns. Uh, this one gets a little bit more sear going to the groove as it goes along. Uh, the syncopated horn lines keep it driving uh, right to the end. Uh, so another kind of composed piece. And uh, track nine, social credit. <laughs> what a title. It's a phrase we don't want to hear very often. Uh, 
Chinese overtones there. Uh, a three-note horn riffs over heavy drumming uh, from Delord. Get this one started. Delord takes the main melody, uh, the first phrase of which reminds me of the old Odd Couple show theme. Da, 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 da. I don't know. Yeah. It just kept bringing that back to me. Uh, it's a medium four-four swing. Sax joins in uh, for harmony, and Martha Ray adds nice little counter lines uh, to the horn phrases. On the repeat, Marshall swaps roles with Allure, uh, and on the phrase before they work it back together. Uh, Marshall is up first for a solo. Uh, he takes his time to build up with slinky lines and a silky tone. Then Delore adds more kicks to the swing uh, on the drums behind as it builds up. Martha Ray is next for an organ solo. He's swinging tightly. Nice articulation. Uh, quotes back from the melody often in his solo. Uh, the horns come back in on the melody and then they stretch it a bit into the uh, section at the end for Delore to get some drumming uh, features in the final notes. Track 10, Certain Uncertitude. Uh, flugelhorn and bass clarinet here trade legato phrases over organ chords on each beat. And then the trumpet takes the melody with answering bass clarinet lines. It's a slow tentative rhythmic movement, hence the incertitude from the title. Uh, Martha Ray keeps the idea going in his solo with an even beat chord hits. Uh, kind of figure between his phrases. The horns return with long lined backing phrases. Uh, Allure gets a solo next. Uh, he focuses on being lyrical with relaxed phrases. Then he returns to the melody with backing from uh, Marshall on counter lines. After a little organ interlude, the horns finish it up uh, with a new repeated lick in octaves. And we're going to finish up the recording with uh, Bounce Nuth, I guess, which is nine. Uh, and this a groovy organ riff starts things out, and the horns add offset echoey syncopated notes on top, matching the riff idea with some drumming textures from Delore. Uh, that must be the bounce idea. It's almost like a boopa, 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 you know, that kind of uh, almost echo answering phrase. Uh, it smooths out uh, in contrast with a legato sax line uh, that gets harmonized from Allure, then it builds up with some intense drumming from uh, Delore underneath. The volume comes down for some solo trading from Mothram, Marshall, and then Allure. Uh, they all join in then after trading off improvising let me try that again, improvising together, uh, building it back into the intense legato sax and trumpet lines over the heavy groove that Delore is playing. Then it ends with a final strain of the offset riff idea again. Um, yeah, by the way, I just, before you, uh, that title bounce nuff. I think that nuff is going to be new. So a new bounce. I oh, think it's new. an adjective okay. here. Okay, it could be nine as well, but I think in the could context, be new, it yeah. could be new. I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah. I guess that that kind of bounce thing is that kind of almost echo, you know, yeah, yeah. between the horns hitting there. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, it's a fun and fresh album. Um, thanks to these original compositions by Martha Ray. The arrangements are well thought out uh, and detailed, but they leave a lot of space in them, which I think is mm -hmm. nice. And the players all match uh, his concept well. Martha Ray is not a show-off player on an organ at all, um, and everyone seems to match that idea of serving the tunes with their solos. There's nice lyrical work from Allure. Uh, Marshall does a good job, some hot tenor uh, and kind of silky lines uh, but he has a different personality on bass clarinet which is nice it's like a whole different 
uh, concept on those tunes. Uh, Delore gets aggressive on times at drums, but I like the way he drives the tunes and picks up uh, the you know the intensity in the right spots. I think there's a lot of to uh, discover on repeated listens to this album. Mm. So if you're a fan of album of uh, organ jazz albums, um, yeah, you should definitely check this one out. Yeah, and as far as I'm concerned, repeated less listens there will be because I like yeah. this. Okay, yeah, and yeah, I felt the same sort of way. I liked. For me, the um, the opening tracks were really uh, the most appealing, mm. yeah, but uh, I think the later ones were also good too. But I just need to hear them again. I felt like yeah, um, yeah, bass, clarinet, you know, all, all our favorite instruments are on this. We have the Hammond organ. Everybody's serving the tune, which is something I always approve of. Right, I really, I really do like that. I, I, I'm fine when people stand out, but I'm more of a tune person myself. Yeah. You know, everything you know kind of serves the song, sort of. Yeah, this one's definitely going into the collection, I'd say. It's, yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the the whole of the ensemble and especially, you know, these are all fresh compositions. So it's going to take a while to get used to them. Uh, but they're well thought out and they all have their own, you know, nice little grooves and uh, little pockets of things. And the, all the musicians are in tune together. So you got to listen to this more than once uh, to get kind of a feel. To I'm it, trying to but, think uh, how many like organ recordings I have in my from this year so far. <laughs> there's a lot of them. <laughs> I'm addicted to them. Yeah, there's going to be yeah, more coming. The, so there's the Delvon Lamar one. There's, there's yeah. going to be the Brian Charette one that's coming, yep. and then there's the one that he plays on the uh, Doug Webb. Yeah, and there's Yako. Yeah, you know, and uh, oh man, this kind of <laughs> yeah, lots of organ in the collection this year. Yeah, no, and I've got, I've got this more. One's going in now too. I've got enough for at least two more organ episodes. So yeah, I'm, just I'm not like, necessarily gonna. I mean, there are some that I passed on, but uh, right. they're all you know they're all yeah. worth hearing. I think you know, yeah. but even yeah. so, a lot of them are kind of hitting my ear and going yeah. into the collection now. So and you know. uh, yeah, this one's great because it's all you know, new compositions, and he's got some the the way the musicians get the concept here is really nice so you should definitely check this one out hmm. uh now we're going to get to one that um i have to say for me is uh a bit outside of my realm of appreciation and uh, anyway um this is uh trumpet release uh antoine Bourgeau, uh chromesthesia uh, yeah. this is on the menace label and i listened to the first track and i read some reviews so i thought oh you know i i liked the first track uh, a bit and the xylophone um, you know and, cool. and i, I <laughs> after reading the inter- instrumentation uh i thought i was going to be more into it than i was it's just because i'm not uh electronic music uh fan and mm-hmm. uh, that's what this turned out to be uh, mainly focused on. Uh, so uh, his previous release uh, got a lot of critical acclaim, uh, Moving Cities. And I, I saw some reviews of that. And I also saw some of this one that looked promising. It just turned out to not be my thing. Anyway, uh, uh, Bourgeau, born 1982. Uh, and uh, he's kind of an established figure in the European jazz scene. And... Uh, uh, getting some notoriety, uh, kind of blending uh, jazz with uh, a lot of uh, electronic music and ideas, uh, which I'm not so much into, but I thought I'd be open to it. But uh, my kind of feeling on, on the whole album is there's a lot of tracks with no trumpet on them. And uh, <laughs> right. yeah, it gets this into This was a some... bit of a, 
a rough listen, but there yeah. were there were elements of it that I really liked. So I'll point that as out. Okay, you go. can point them out because I got sort of okay. lost because I'm not an electronic uh, music yeah. fan uh, too much. Uh, anyway, uh, here we uh, are uh, with uh, Bourgeau on trumpet and flugelhorn, and also writing all of the material. Uh, the main uh, group uh, features Enzo uh, Corniel, Fender Rhodes piano, MS Twenty Synth, uh, Xaba Palotai guitars, and uh, Affected guitars, uh, Gauthier To, Prophet synthesizer, Arnold Domain on drums and uh, percussion. We've got some guests, uh, Samuel Laviso, percussion on tracks 2, 6, 9, and 10, Gianni Casaretto, guitar on 9 and 10, uh, William Christopher, bass clarinet, I think, but I couldn't hear it <laughs> on track 10, and uh, Jose Menia bass flute on track 10. I could hear that uh, on here. Uh, anyway, uh, we're going to start out uh, PBDQ. Uh, this is a track I heard before uh, we picked mm. this for the thing, uh, the episode. Uh, it starts with a melody played on flugelhorn and electric guitar uh, moving together with an open interval kind of harmony feeling underneath. There's some roads that sneaks in as it repeats. Deep bass and drums join in with an exotic groove, and the guitar works in arpeggiated backing. Bourgeau solos using lots of modal ideas that fit over the chords uh, beneath uh, what he's doing, getting some cries and trills in for effect. The roads pans back and forth. Uh, left and right uh, and the guitar has some crunchy chord ideas they bring the original melody back over the heavy drumming from Dolman and then play it to a final uh, time kind of sparse as it was in the beginning of the tune when I heard this I thought okay I can be up for this a little electronica mixed in but from here on out um, <laughs> sort of lost me in the weeds uh, yeah, track one two thing that, yeah, one thing ahead. that kept me listening is the uh, the the bass sound. It's got this big, heavy, goopy sound, like yeah. it's just being drawn from this bucket of bass sludge. You know, yeah, it's, that, it's really yeah, that's, really like that's that. there it's, for sure. And you hear that throughout the album, so that kind of kept me in it a little bit. You know, track two is where I started to fade out. Uh, <laughs> red lines. Uh, it's less than two minutes. It's an R and B groove with deep bass, lots of synthy sounds, extra percussion. There's some. Sp- pitch bendy things that happen near the end but there's no trumpet on the track yeah i said this was uh chilled out and mildly druggy <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's atmospheric yeah. the whole piece does this whole track yeah. is atmospheric so yeah okay. uh track three is called walk uh starts with a synthy cycle of keyboard chords and even rock drum beat goes round and round abrajou uh, puts a melody line on top there's some crunchy guitar backing too it's a big wash of sound that keeps driving along uh Bourgeau Joins back in with some melody riffs. Things get quieter. The drums drop out after three minutes with some chiming guitar figures and piano. At about four minutes, 20 seconds or so, a uh, trumpet rejoins on a line working with the keyboard rhythmically. Uh, the drums have uh, snuck back in with a new groove. There's a piano solo working across that groove with changing harmonies. Then uh, Bourgeau comes back in with some trumpet improvisations into a final melodic line to the end. Yeah, I kind of dug the rock groove and yeah, it's kind of atmospheric, was, you know. What are the better yeah. tracks, yeah. But they they just kind of ride the groove, really. There's no real solo in yeah. this, but it was, you know, it was okay. It's know. all right. It made uh, me feel good. Anyway. Next track is uh, Meeting Point. This is um, electric guitar chords, kind of crunchy and open. Uh, get it going. Uh, joined by a heavy drum beat. 
Abajou brings in a trumpet melody line that's modern and modal. There's a big wash of keyboard sounds underneath it. The chord cycles go around for a bit, and Bourgeau comes back for a solo. He does some exploring of the upper register, uh, finds some tension spots in his lines. Um, the beat fades away for a solo echoey guitar section with some slides, uh, slide guitar that is, and then percussive ideas. Bourgeau comes back in for a solo. Uh, sounds like on flugelhorn here over the new softer atmosphere. Uh, he plays fluidly, lots of graceful lines, uh, full of little ornaments soloing over the end of the relaxed flow. I mean, I think he's a really good player and I like his ideas. It's just, I'm not so big on the, um, you know, environment that uh, he's uh, created and situated things in. Uh, track five, Mind's Eyes, a tentative flugel intro in unison with piano notes uh, comes into some amorphous clouds and drumming over which Bourgeois solos uh, freely, uh, quiets down with a steady beat that forms uh, interjected with rhythmic piano figures. Bourgeois plays some more improvised solo ideas and then after a pause introduces a new melody doubled in the piano. Uh, the piano then takes some improvisations over the pulsing movement while drum fills and crunchy guitar sounds fill in the background. Bourgeois comes back in again uh, with another melody line alternating with piano figures to the end. Yeah, I got nothing here. <laughs> it was okay. But, you know. Track six, uh, Photism. Uh, slow and synthy sounding intro. It's a big wash of sound with some extra percussion. It gets caught in a loop of descending chords. Uh, and uh, no trumpet appears on this track as those chords cycle on. Uh, yeah, this track... particular track kind of has like this, the sound field kind of wavers. And uh, yeah. there's a band in the 1990s called Portishead that used the mm. same effect. And it kind of reminded me of them a little bit. Yeah. So I was kind of like, I dug that a little bit. Anyway. All right. Mm. Uh, track seven, Horns and Battle. Another synthy intro with tricky drum beats, for sure. Uh, Rojo plays a melody line over the unusual groove. There's a Rhodes piano solo with some uh, guitar stabs uh, added into it and other synthy backing sounds. Bourgeois returns for some fast running solo lines, uh, rhythmic ideas over the mix and it ties into the melody line at the end. Track eight, Solar Hit. Uh, it's a rhythmic Rhodes riff to get things started. Trumpet and drum hits interjected together. Uh, Bourgeois gets into the groove with rhythmic figures mixing up the piano for a bit, uh, then alternates some more flowing lines occasionally, and it goes on like this to the end. Yeah, this uh, sounded pretty um, produced. It sounded yeah. like there were a lot of overlaid repeating patterns. Yeah. It kind of sounded like, uh, to me, spaced out Philip Glass, like early yeah. Philip Glass. I'm getting a little really too, spaced out. too electronically uh, produced by this point. Yeah. Uh, track nine, Life in Ochre. Synthy piano and guitar chords make an exotic, dreamy atmosphere with other synthy sounds and a few acoustic guitar uh, kind of parts that are added in here. Uh, it's okay uh, to listen to, but there's no trumpet. And there's not going to be any trumpet on the last track, uh, Chromaticism, which is very short, about a minute and a half long. This is a psychedelic wash of guitar and keyboard <laughs> chords. Um, there is a bass flute in there. I can barely hear it. Uh, there's supposed to be a bass clarinet in there too, but I couldn't pick that out even on repeated listenings, and there's no trumpet in that one too. So uh, for me, 
Um, this is kind of a no-go because um, I, re you know, when I hear a trumpet release, I want to hear the trumpet a lot, and this seems to be sort of uh, pulling between two worlds of, you know, right. electronic music ideas and trumpet, which you know, yeah. Russ I, being a trumpeter, I should yeah. mention. Yeah, I, I, and I, there's no, I have no criticism against um, his trumpet playing. I, I liked what I heard, but I didn't hear enough of it, and yet I heard a lot of this. Uh, Electronica. Maybe I'm an old guy now, and I just don't understand or appreciate this uh, electronic idiom. But um, I think it needs to be better integrated. And certainly, I don't want to hear tracks without trumpet on them as well. Um, you know, I wanna, if you I don't wanna... understand it, it means it's kids stuff and it shouldn't be on the adult but music podcast, that... should it? <laughs> yeah, whatever. No, but this isn't. Um, this is definitely isn't kids stuff. Okay. No, well, he's not a kid, actually. I think he's yeah. in his 40s now, anyway. It, for me, electronica, generally speaking, isn't my thing either. But it really depends on you know how the, how it's being done. There are certain like electronic bands that I really like. Yeah. But uh, in this case, I like the uh, totally fat electric bass sound. It was, mm. I really, you know, it's kind of like Peter Gabriel sledgehammer type of goopy yeah, yeah. oozing along to it that I really liked a right. lot. Um, and the grooves were all satisfying and. Um, I said that I like the album, but I don't really think it stands out in a way that warrants me hearing it again. Um, there's a lot of electronic alterations of sounds in this, mm. and I'm really just interested in experiments like that in passing. So I was, you know, happy to hear it, but I don't know. I think I I got it. You know what I mean? I don't really need right. to to work at this anymore. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just not my thing, but I'd like to yeah. hear uh, Bourgeois in a different context. Um, I want to hear him stretch out more. I, I feel like the solos that he got were just kind of snippets, really. Uh, I liked what he did, on, especially on the first track with some modal ideas and moving mm -hmm. around. So I'd like to hear him in a more traditional concept because, hey, I'm a traditional guy. I'm old now and I can say yeah. my opinion. And this is You're our podcast, school. so... You're anyway, old school. Well, it's our platform. School. We have a platform. We have a platform. That? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I'm open to uh, checking things out. This one, like I said, I just checked out the first track. I thought I might find more that I liked, but eh, you know. Yeah. My these these ears are old. I I want to hear those old <laughs> instruments. You know, I want to hear the piano <laughs> and the and the woody bass and uh, those those uh, electronic sounds. You know. I, I can't uh, do that so much anymore. I remember my grandmother used to say, like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks about herself. Why would yeah, you do yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> like, she didn't want to change, you know? Yeah. Anyway, if any listeners who made it um, this far, I got to tell you, um, well, before I, I tell you what's coming up, uh, let's um, just say that uh, thanks again for our logo fast signs of Staten Island. Oh, yeah. Um, got that neon popping look and uh, that helps us stand out amongst all the other uh, icons that come up on uh, all the um, podcast uh, platforms. Uh, so thanks again. We appreciate that. And uh, again, if you uh, enjoyed the podcast and you're still with us at this point, uh, do like or subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Uh, check us out on Facebook. Uh, on, if you check us out on Facebook, you also get the um, playlist for next week, which I'll upload tomorrow. 
Um, so you'll find out what we're uh, going to be uh, listening to, and you can listen to it before the podcast if you want. Right. Well, we've got to say what it is because we were yeah. teasing. Well, I'm going to get to that. That's right. And so next week is Greek Week. <laughs> it's Greek Week, and so we're going to feature all Greek music in uh, classical and jazz music. And not and only that, that is, a, and this is going to be a rare thing because there yeah. just isn't that much Greek music released on CD yeah. or in classical music. But uh, I've got three albums, miraculously, two of them on the Naxos label, who are right. very adventurous. They put out a lot of, um, you yeah, know, international stuff. So yeah, and we're gonna have. I got three um, Greek uh, piano trios. And uh, I've heard two of those. They're all uh, really intense and good. So you got um, French this week. You're going to get some Greek stuff next week, all on episode 68 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And uh, stay tuned. We'll see you again next week for episode 69 and some Greek fun. And in the meantime, uh, if you want to check out those recordings, uh, look us up on Deezer or Facebook and get the playlist for next week early starting tomorrow. So until next week then, keep listening. We'll see you again next time. Mm -hmm.